Thank you. I'd like to call to order the City Council meeting of October the 17th, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Cohn? <clears throat> Here. Councilmember Pascal? Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Here. Mayor Sweet? Here. Thank you very much. Our study session tonight is on two topics. The first is a universal low-income program update, and the second is a capital improvement program update. We expect to convene our regular meeting at approximately 7.30 p.m. City Manager. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So the first topic, the universal low-income program update, is a continuation of conversations we've been having since the council retreat. Uh, here to give you the overview of that is our financial planning manager, George Duckdale, and our senior financial analyst, Andrea Peterman. Welcome, George. Thank you. Just share the screen. Okay, good evening, Mayor, <coughs> Council Members. And we're excited to be here this evening to talk to you about the developments for the Universal Low Income Program that we've been working on um, for the last month, few months since the May study session. We have 12 slides for you this evening um, as we walk through the current developments. And as the city manager said, I'm here as well as Andrea Peterman. And then we also have a number of staff members um, who are available for questions on specific um, parts of the effort because it really has been a cross-departmental team that's put this together. So as a bit of background, um, as a reminder for council, during the 2023-2024 budget process, we um, Apologies. Uh, we added a service package for $680,000, which was a mixture of general fund and utility funding um, to provide a universal low-income relief mm. program. The idea was to expand the current program that we have in the utilities, um, which uh, serves senior um, residents over 62 and those on um, Social Security disability, to include all residents who are low-income, as well as um, to expand beyond just the utilities. This was partly driven by vehicle license fees and some of the new fees and increases that we were seeing. Uh, when staff came to council in May 23 at the May retreat, we identified the real key constraint of the current utility low-income program, which is undersubscribed, um, as being that the, the customer has to be the bill holder. And that would exclude about 96% of the participants that we uh, were able to give utility relief to through our ARPA program, as well as our rental assistance for ARPA program. And then as a function of the first issue, um, as I've said, the program is underutilized currently. So at, at the May retreat, staff proposed um, a way of calculating or proposed that we would calculate standard rebate amounts for low-income residents um, in lieu or as an estimate of their cost of utilities for those living in multifamily buildings. So at the May retreat, we received um, excellent feedback from council. Um, broadly, I would, the, the feedback was supportive of the notion of the program, both of expanding the eligibility of the utility program and of adding in other fees to the program. Um, there were some concerns uh, mentioned around the, both the, what we could call the frequency or the kind of delay. Um, the idea of rebates versus a discount creates a natural delay between when the cost is incurred by the resident and when the city is able to provide relief. Um, also a desire to ensure that language and technology barriers to access 
are addressed, and this was um, described both ways, that we were able to provide online access as well as provide paper forms, language translation, and other services that we know pe help um, people access programs in general. And then council definitely expressed an interest in identifying other fee discounts. Um, the other thing that's not here on the slide, but that I will identify is that council um, agreed with staff and, and were definitely supportive of the idea of ensuring that the program got going and that we were able to get some relief to some people while we continue to develop it. So what we're seeing today and what we will hopefully be able to propose for you in December is really just a phase one of a program that we hope will continue to, to evolve and to become more effective. So since May 2023, um, staff has been working across department, like I said, including public works, finance, um, human services, and um, in particular, and, and along with the CMO, to refine different elements of the program. So one of the things that we think um, has changed a bit since May is that we believe it will be more effective in terms of both getting support and in the amount of support we may be able to get to people to work directly with residents uh, and not through landlords. This may also help with the um, delay between when a discount or, or a utility bill is paid and when um, the discount can, and the rebate can be given because there's an administrative uh, workload for landlords that may not be there for individual residents. Um, we've also identified some specific groupings for the utility discounts. And I'll say at this point that um, Andrea is about to come up and walk through in the next few slides exactly what, who those groups are and how the discount will work for particularly those living in multifamily buildings. And we've identified other fees that will be included in the program launch, and those are at the end of the presentation. The final thing I'll mention before I hand over to Andrea is that one of the key changes since May is that we have issued an RFP um, to contract out some of the management and the administrative load of the program. Um, the RFP required that the vendors would be able to provide both online platform um, provide an online, um, online platform as well as doing the verification. Uh, this is very important for us, partly because we believe that uh, the vendor will be able to provide this kind of centralized online platform, but also because both doing the verification and holding the information that verification would require is, is a, both a load to the city and creates a public records, um, potential public records conflict. Um, vendors would also be able to provide rebate payments through electronic tra transfer of funds, check, or potentially prepaid debit cards, which would be more flexible than the city would be able to do. Um, we would also be able to lean on the community outreach ability of partners. We could, I, we could work individually with community services, um, but the RFP that we did receive a response to required that the vendor also be able to reach out to the community using their own networks and the networks of other um, nonprofits in the area. And then, as I said previously, the city would not be responsible for storing sensitive data of participants. Um, so we will obviously have time for discussion at the end. But before I hand over to Andrea to walk through the specifics, are there any questions on the first couple of slides? Go for Andrea. Good evening, Mayor and Council. So legally... The city must establish utility rates that are uniform for the same class of customers. In classifying these customers, the city has the discretion to consider differences in cost and character of services and in the location of customers. So using those parameters, staff identified four different classifications based on dwelling type and bill holder status. The first classification is somebody living in a single family home who is a direct bill holder 
And in that case, the discount would be applied directly to the utility bill, bill which is the current program. The next classification would be those living in single-family homes who are not direct bill holders. And because we have billing data for all properties, we could calculate the rebate based on actual billing data for those people. For those living in the multifamily building who have utility costs itemized in their rental agreements or their bills, we would use those bills to calculate a rebate based on their utility payments. And finally, for those in multifamily buildings who have utilities included in rent, the rent, the rebate would be based on the unit size. So to calculate that rebate for that last category, we analyzed 12 months of billing data from four Imagine Housing properties in Kirkland. These properties were chosen because they have a low vacancy rate, so that helps ensure more accurate per unit billing data. Uh, initially, we calculated a per person average cost, and we used the King County Housing Authority assumption of occupants per housing type so, for example, there would be one person in a studio or three people in a two-bedroom. And we assigned an average cost to each unit type based on that number of people in each unit. And then we applied the discounts to, with using the same parameters as we use for our current program. So 50% for water, 25% discount for sewer, and 40% discount for garbage. Then we wanted to see if our estimates were in the right ballpark. So we looked at what's called a utility allowance that's used by housing authorities across Washington state. A utility allowance is an estimate of utilities that would be paid by low-income residents. And they're used by housing authorities to determine, to determine the total resident payment for rent, which defined by HUD is both shelter and the cost of a reasonable amount of utilities. So after comparing those costs, we found a couple of issues with this per person cost estimate. Um, first, there were, there were big gaps between the amounts estimated for, by the unit size. So very small for a studio and large for a three bedroom um, in comparison to the utility allowances of the housing authorities, uh, which makes sense because a studio with one person, a three bedroom, an assumption of four and a half people would be four and a half times. Um, so it was a little uneven. And the other problem with this was that the total annual rebate for those larger units was going to exceed the annual rebate of someone in a single family home. And it could potentially exceed the actual utility billing of a building. So we went back to the drawing board and looked at another formula. And this time, we used an adjustment factor. And this, this comes from HUD's guidelines for utility discounts, utility allowances. We used the same billing data. Um, and the first thing we did was we calculated a per unit rate for water and sewer by taking the total average cost of each utility and dividing by total number of housing units. And then we assigned a cost to each housing unit using this adjustment factor. We used one bedroom as the average, that's the majority of units in these, in these properties. 
And then we did a factor for a two bedroom, it was uh, 1.2. So we would multiply that average cost by 1.2. For studios, we used 0.9, um, et cetera. And what we found was that this adjustment factor reduced the total discount for the larger units, but it increased the total discount for the smaller units. And that's what make up most of the housing units at Imagine Properties. Um, and more importantly, the annual totals did not exceed the estimated amounts for a low-income household in a single-family home annually. So we believe that this measure meets the policy goal of providing a meaningful discount to low-income residents and is also within the city's legal restrictions. George? Looking for questions or comments. Yeah, are there any questions <clears throat> on this particular part? That's a lot of... <laughs> it was really well described in the memo. Was it? Memo. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so um, moving beyond the utility discounts um, onto the other program discounts. So staff have identified five um, other vehicle programs and provided nice pictures here as well. Um, of the ones that we're proposing to include. So the first two um, I'll deal with individually. The first is pet licenses. So um, the current rates are there. Um, the memo proposed either a recommendation of a 50% or 100% discount. Staff's current recommendation is, is a 100% discount for a pet license. Um, this is partly because um, there's, there's a belief that the, having a pet license has benefit beyond just the financial cost uh, the financial gain to the city of somebody being um, having a pet license somebody being in the system and also there isn't a um, particularly effective enforcement mechanism around pet licenses and so because we would like people to get pet licenses um, and there's not a lot of you know we don't want to go into significant enforcement around pet licenses actually providing a discount or being able to just provide free licenses essentially um, is is our proposal here? We can, of course, choose our own discount level for at any at any level council feels is appropriate. Um, but we have a, two questions on this slide for council. The first one here is: Does council agree with the staff recommendation that pet license fees be provided with a hundred percent discount? And I assume this is the same qualifying criteria. It is yes, exactly. Councilmember Nixon. Well. My feeling is that we should provide only a $30 discount or 15 for seniors. The reason is we still want to encourage people to get their pets altered. Mm -hmm. Oh, good point. Okay. Uh, Councilmember Curtis. I, I had the same reaction when I was sitting here looking at this slide. So uh, I, would, I think what you just said is the $60 would be $30 for the unaltered. Okay, I agree. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I had a, sing a similar thought. However, my thought was, are there programs that are offered elsewhere to help offset the cost of um, spaying or neutering a pet? And if so, could we provide that information at time of application for the pet license fee to be waived? And can, anyway, can we provide that information and then consider that, factor that in somehow? We can definitely look into that. I believe there are some, but I don't know how linked up they are. So, yeah. Thank you. I just want that to be part of the process so that we can encourage them and then maybe they mm -hmm. could, we could give them a certain amount of time perhaps to do that and then they would get the entire $30 waived and they wouldn't have to pay the extra. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? 
Okay, hey, thank you. And the second one on this slide is the vehicle licensing fee, which is the car tab that goes into effect on January 1st uh, of next year. So a nuance here is that we are unable to provide a discount because the, um, the fee is paid with the rest of the car tab fee via the state. And so the money has to go to the state. The RCW does also not allow us to use vehicle license fee money to provide the discount program. We are able to use our own general fund um, currently, but so we would basically be collecting the car tab from everybody, and then if somebody qualified through the program and provided with their vehicle license, we could uh, rebate their $20 car tab fee. Um, the staff recommendation here is to provide a full rebate, and partly because we believe there are a number of significant, uh, or people who are you know, significantly below the 80% AMI uh, threshold who are living potentially in their vehicles or who, you know, have, um, who have, you know, need their vehicles. And so we, um, we're proposing a full rebate here. Um, but that's the second question on this slide is, does council agree with that? Again, we, we could provide any level of rebate. We just... Councilmember Nixon. So my question on this one is, are we going to rebate only one vehicle per household or every vehicle in the household? I don't know how my colleagues feel about that. I would be more inclined to go for one vehicle in a household, but my thought. Councilmember Falcon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Yeah, I'd like for us to put some more thought into that. I don't necessarily know if I agree with Councilmember Nixon's, but I understand the thought behind it. I don't know if it would be one per person or two per per, like what that might be, but I understand the intent behind that. So I think just putting some thought into a recommendation around that would be helpful. We can bring my recommendation. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So the other three um, programs are the parks and recreation fees. So um, the scholarship program that currently exists for the parks and recreation fees actually works slightly differently to the program that we're pro uh, proposing more universally. They have three tiers to the program. Um, so our recommendation currently is to keep the current program, but anybody who qualified through our own process would automatically be eligible. So we would cross-share eligibility, but because the, um, and vice versa, so anybody who would qualify for a park scholarship would be, could be qualified for our uh, low-income program. But between now and January, we don't believe we have the time to link the two programs up. So this is one of those ones where for now we're proposing to keep the program separate, but it is our long-term goal to make them part of the same program. <clears throat> uh, Councilmember Curtis. So you would, we would, re, re, if someone qualifies, we would reach out to them and let them know that the scholarship program is available for park usage fees? Yes, I say that somewhat hesitant just because we haven't designed the form yet, but yes, there's no reason why we couldn't do that. Yet. And then when you come back, can you give us some sort of report of how the scholarship program is being used and the participation, what income levels? Thank you. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And so I'm curious if the opposite is also true, since the um, the Parks and Recreation fee discount is already a program that's up and running, if folks that are already enrolled in that, if we'll be reaching out to them to offer them the application for the Universal Low Income Program. We sure then, hopefully we, depending on how the, um, I don't know off the top of my head how, what verification is required for that program, but we do have, um, so my hope is that if somebody's already qualified for that program, we could maybe automatically enroll them and reach out to them. I do know that, we obviously have people enrolled in our current utility program, and our intention is to keep those people on that program. And then, because our the vendor who provide who responded to the RFP, um, if we select them, will likely be doing all of the verification. Um, that person who's in the current utility program would automatically be eligible for the other discounts. 
So it would be our intention that that's true, but I'd have to cross-check the, you know, know exactly what the verification was, whether they'd have to fill in a form or just be enrolled. Thank you. So business license fees, um, we brought this one to the May retreat and there was some council feedback that business license fees may not be necessary as, as part of the program because it deals with a slightly different cross-section of the, of the Kirkland population. Um, our current proposal here is that the, we, we do have a 50% base fee discount. So businesses pay a $100 base fee for their business license. Um, and so there's a 50% discount on that base fee for um, businesses that earn less than $20,000 in gross receipts. And if council remembers, this was actually changed this year as part of the changes to the business license code that increased the um, per FTE fee as well. So this was increased from, I remember, 12,000 up to 20,000, I think. So our recommendation here is to expand that base discount fee. So if anyone is a low-income business owner, so they qualify for the universal low-income program, and they have a business, they would be eligible for a $50 base fee rather than $100. We are not proposing including the per FTE fee in the discount, just the base license. So they would still pay the 130 per? They would still pay the 130 per, per FTE. Councilmember Nixon? So when I read this, the thought that came to mind to me is that you know we have a, a lot of people who rent units um, many of which go to people with low incomes. And just being a landlord requires you to have a business license. And I, this might fall outside of this program, but I would really like to look at um, exempting from business license fees um, rental properties that rent for like 30% AMI or below or something like that, right? To um, give a little help to uh, people who rent units who are committed to using those units to support people with low incomes. Just a thought. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, <clears throat> I like that idea by Councilmember Nixon, and I wonder actually, um, in the interest of sort of a universal program, if uh, instead of looking at AMI necessarily, just look at uh, whether the rent, rent the the uh, tenant who's renting qualifies under our universal low discount um, discount program then perhaps a landlord renting that property um, might yeah. be entitled to the 50% the discount. Then the, and the reason I, um, so thanks for that. And then uh, my question was gonna be um, on this one, it's not perfectly clear from the memo or from the slide. This is for a resident of Kirkland who qualifies for the universal low income program and also has a business, has a business license. So it's, there's no sort of, there's no entry point for just someone who, let's say, for whatever, lives in Kenmore, has a business in Kirkland, um, and <clears throat> qualifies on income basis if they lived in Kirkland. You get where I'm going with this. This is for someone who actually is a resident of Kirkland, qualifies for the low income, and has a business. Yeah, so the in intention would be that when you apply for the program, you are a Kirkland resident, and there will be, um, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end, there's going to be some... Um, some kind of nuance to how we do the form because a number of our residents are North Shore utility customers. And so we'll have to, we have spoken to North Shore and they have their own program. And at this point, we'd have to just point them, point people in the direction of North Shore's program. Um, but our intention is that somebody would fill it. <coughs> they, would, they, would, they would have a rental agreement that showed they live or, you know, the mortgage statement or something that showed they lived in Kirkland. 
and that would make them eligible, and then they would also have a business license number that they would add, which is how they would qualify. So yes, you would have to be both a Kirkland resident and a business owner Good. to get this. I like the idea that it keeps it uh, manageable from an from administrative standpoint, so thank you. Go ahead, George. And then the final one is, is the false alarm program, so the alarm registration fees. So we do have um, seniors already exempted from this fee, so we require residents to register monitored and non-monitored security systems, so it's a $25 annual fee. So the recommendation here is to exempt anybody who qualifies for the low income program and has a registered or is part of the um, alarm registration fees. I don't, we don't know really how many people would qualify through this route for the program, but this is another fee that would be easy to administer as part of the program. Councilmember Nixon. So my thought on this one is um, just eliminate the fee entirely, make registration voluntary um, for everybody. But I really, before making that as a recommendation, I want to understand um, how much revenue we get from it and uh, an analysis of what the impact would be. Do we think it would result in more false alarms or those kind of things? Um, I mean, you could uh, charge a false alarm fee, fine, whatever you want to call it, without having to have the registration at all, right? So my, that's my inclination, is just eliminate the fee from everybody. I guess my question would be, how do we, how do we get the information? Is it self-reported? Yeah, for the false alarm reduction program, it is self-reported. We, we put mailers out, we advertise for people, we connect with businesses, we connect with licenses. But the, the purpose of the program is to educate um, people with, with alarms to how not to have a false alarm program. So the idea is not so much the money to coming in, but to reduce the number of false alarms for the police officers to respond to. So it's an educational program for the community. Great. Uh, <clears throat> I guess I would just be curious about how the industry has changed since this fee program was put into place overall. I, I tend to think that more people have gone to you know, the, the ring doorbell and, and those things where you're not paying registration fees and they're not automatically um, alerting the police. And so there's been a pretty big shift. I just wonder how, like Council Member Nixon, whether this is still a necessary thing. We can definitely bring back data on the number of people signed up and the revenue and maybe the trend over time to see if the number has been falling as well as um, the number of I think we have the number of penalties. I don't know if we have the number of false alarm call-outs that we get, but we can definitely bring back some data from the last few years that would help to answer some of those questions. Go ahead, George. <clears throat> okay, so this table um, is just an estimate of what could be um, the total annual um, benefit, and you can see there the difference between a rebate, which would be funds that go back to a resident for something they've already paid, and a deferred cost, which is effectively a discount. Um, for the utility rates, we use the two-bedroom unit. As Andrea said, most low-income renters are in studio, one-bedroom, or in smaller units, um, and so the, the, the discount would not be that large, but the total could be somewhere in the region of about $500 per year. Um, to give a sense of what that could mean, 
Um, I know we had a question and there wasn't in the memo anything about the total number of people that could qualify. The data for that is very hard to come by and we are looking into it, um, partly because we have so many utility customers who are in North Shore. And most of the American Community Survey data um, is based on the federal poverty level, which is much, much lower. Um, and then the data that does exist about um, area median income tends to be either for the whole city or for zip codes, and so it doesn't quite match up. What we do know is what's up here is how many people have signed up for our prior programs. Um, so our residential rent relief program, the first time we granted just under $500,000, served about 100 households, and you can see for the utility relief and the residential relief program, the second time it was fewer um, households. Both of those had an eligibility, sorry, all of those had an eligibility actually of 100% of area median income. The, the caveat here is that you had to have some kind of arrears or debt to qualify for that program, and you wouldn't in the case of this program. So what we did was looked at some of what we do know. Um, so if all imagined housing units participate in the program, the total discount um, for the utility portion would be about 125,000. Um, we know that there are about 1,300 low-income housing units um, in buildings that have um, at least 10% of their units as affordable. Um, so that includes both King County Housing Authority, Imagine Housing, other similar low-income housing providers, as well as a lot of buildings that have qualified through um, the MFTE program and other kind of tax exemption programs. Um, if everybody there qualified for the program, it would be just above the budget number. However, those numbers do include units that are outside of our utility area. And there's a final one, if all households of the COVID-19 relief program participated, again, it would be about $100,000 that would be um, given in rebates in each year. Um, so what I would say here is the, the ultimate answer is we're still looking into it. We don't have um, a, a definitive answer on the number of people that will potentially qualify. What we can say from prior experience and from experience um, in other jurisdictions is that the problem is often finding people to sign up or having people sign up for programs rather than having suddenly money kind of, um, you know, us sending too much money. What we would suggest is that we have a budget number of $680,000. We're proposing that for the 25-26 budget, we bring this back as an ongoing program. So in the first few months of 2024, we would try and get an assessment of how successful the program's been and we would have that as potentially a cap, or we would come back to council if that number looked like we'd be giving out more than that, and then we would build something with better data for 25-26. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you for those numbers. Um, so I just want to make sure I'm understanding the numbers correctly. The 680,000, is that for two years or one year that we've budgeted? It was a two-year number, but we haven't spent any this year. Okay, okay, but moving forward, that was planned on being for two years, and then the 721 for each year. That would be each year. Based yes, on that everybody. estimate. Okay. And um, the majority of this is in utilities of what you have here. And do we, we do allow currently folks to donate into the utility program. Is that correct? So that could be a potential budget to bridge that gap in addition to the 680 every two years. Is that correct? And, correct. and we also have people on the current program who receive a discount. And so they wouldn't, there wouldn't be a rebate. You know, there's some money. I think we have about 550 people currently signed up to the program. So that money is already accounted for outside that 680,000. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead, George. Okay. So um, in terms of next steps, so... Um, 
we're receiving council feedback as we speak, which is great. We are, will then finalize the program design. Um, our intention is to implement a rollout in January 2024. Um, we do have you know, a lot, all of the details or a lot of the details to work through um, in the next couple of months. Our intention is to present an ordinance um, at the December 12th meeting to amend the Kirkland Municipal Code. Um, it would be a number of sections of the code and actually we are considering a proposal, been talking to the city attorney's office about adding a new section of the code to deals directly with the universal low income program that would then reference and be cross-referenced by the areas that had, um, that, that were affected by that program. We would then have, similar to the Development Services Code, it would reference a table on our website which allowed us to administratively adjust the fees so we didn't have to adjust the code every time the, the, the discount changed. Um, and then as I said, as we go through 2024, we'll evaluate the participation, um, look for any remaining barriers to entry, um, and establish a recommended budget for the 25, 26 and beyond. I get a twitch in my Thank you, Madam Mayor. I know I, I was saving some general comments and questions for the end. Thank you for, for humoring me. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so thrilled and I am so proud of Kirkland for leading on this effort. So thank you to staff for all of your hard work in doing this. Um, I'm happy to hear you say that we're going to move forward with, as you uh, said, I believe phase one of the program will continue to evolve. I think that's great. Let's just get this going. I'm really excited for that. Um, I'm sure we're going to be talking about more specific, specifics of outreach later on as we um, negotiate with a potential contractor, um, but just wanted to throw out there in, in addition to reach out to our senior council as well um, for the outreach that they can do for a lot of folks in our community. I know we have a lot of folks kind of in that first category of single-family homeowners who are direct bill, and I know a lot of those are already on our program, but just want to use this opportunity to continue to advertise that ongoing program. Um, <clears throat> I have a question about how we calculate the um, direct bill holder discount. My understanding is that it's on, I'm going to get out of my depth a little bit here, but the base it's a base rate discount only and not based on utilization, and the rebate would be based on both base rate and utilization combined. So is that something you'd recommend that we take this opportunity to also re-examine the direct billing discount program as well and how that's calculated? So I believe the original intention of that was, of only being on base rate, was to not incentivize water usage, but it does create potential, as this program develops, potential inequity. I'm gonna to defer to the finance director on whether we should change the program because I would be going outside my own. <laughs> we, can, we can take a look at that. A, a good time to uh, change the code for utilities is when we go through the rate setting process. Uh, so next year as the rates are set, that way they can consider the impact of what rates are set for the utilities. Okay, great. And hopefully we would have some data at that point of utilization mm -hmm. of this program. We'd be able to compare kind of how those are lining up and if they are kind of on par with one another. Um, also a question about the rebates, the ones that aren't able to do discounts. Um, the rebates, my understanding is that would be some sort of flat rate. So it would be the same every billing cycle, like for someone who has a, um, a lease for 12-month lease or something, that, that it would be the same monthly or every two months or however um, often that's built in. Um, if that's the case, then can you speak to what the lag time might be? Because that was one of my concerns is that I wouldn't want, it was um, folks with a low income um, oftentimes have cash flow issues, right? And so just being able to front the money and then have to wait for reimbursement could be problematic. And so can you speak to kind of how quickly we'd be able to provide that quote unquote rebate, we're calling it a rebate, but could we provide that to them 
very quickly upon them um, qualifying for the program, so they don't have to wait a month or two months after they've been in the program. I would say I hope we hope so. So our intention is to um, we've we from both the audit and the kind of legal perspective, what we can do is provide the vendor with a sort of lump sum to provide in rebates, so we don't have to sign off on every single new person who becomes eligible. Um, and so if we had 680, we could provide it in sections to the, to the vendor. I don't know about their processing time and turnaround time. Um, we, we have utility bills every two months, and so a, a logical cycle will be no more frequent than two months. But I don't know, I, and I think when what we're assuming, and we have started talking to Imagine and some of the other multifamily um, landlords about how they calculate utility usage for residents, because rent doesn't fluctuate, and so they... Um, build in the kind of seasonality of, of, of usage into the into that base rate. Um, our hope is that people will be able to access it very quickly, but we don't have a precise timeline on it. Okay, thank you. Um, and are there other fees that we haven't thought of here? Have we gone, like what has our process been to make sure that we're really capturing all of the, the fees and things that someone with a low income may need to pay? Like I think of like, you know, aid car fees or other things that may not be the best example because it's kind of a special case, but um, so there are categories of fees. I, I would say we haven't comprehensively been through all our fees yet, and we, we will. Um, it would likely be as we gear up for the next budget cycle. There are categories of fees that we have deliberately um, not ignored, decided, to ex decided not to include. The two that are most kind of jump to mind are development fees. Uh, our, our assumption was that for the most part, development fees are um, a small portion of the overall project. So even if somebody's doing something you know, relatively minor, the fee that they pay in the development is a very small portion of what they're actually paying for their home. And that also um, development fees are generally for optional improvements. Uh, the second category is fines and forfeits. There is um, potentially reasons why we would like to, to change some of the state code around fines and forfeits, but we're not sure that this is the best program to be rebating people for you know in those instances so those are the two categories that we've kind of stayed away from but we will go through comprehensively and look at all of our fees and and see if there are others thank you for the de development fees i encourage us to look at if there are folks who it's less discretionary like if they may have a new disability and need to retrofit their home in order to um, be able to use their home let's look at that and see if that's something that we could um, incorporate into this program and then my, just my last question, um, are, do we know of any other cities locally who are doing something similar to this, kind of a, a one-stop application for discounts of their fees? Not exactly like this. I do know that um, the city of Seattle has a, a website where you can put in your zip code and income, and it kind of gives you all of the discounts that you're eligible, both for them and through the county and others. As far as we know, as far as we know, nobody is doing... Um, quite this, and Andrea had some conversations with people at the Housing Authority, and we've had conversations with people at Imagine who seem pretty interested and excited that we're doing this, which is an indication that they haven't seen it exactly like this. So we haven't. We we were surprised when we started that there are other people doing similar-ish things in utilities, that, and that's where the bulk of the money is. But as far as we know, nobody has this kind of one-stop shop for, for all discounts. Great, thank you. Well, hopefully we'll be sharing that out and the word will spread and we'll have some folks copying our model. Thank you. Council Member Falcon, I wanted to let you know on the transport fees, there already is uh, reduced or eliminated fees for those who don't have insurance or uh, requested or have income issues. Thank you. Thank you. Council Member Nixon. Um, thank you. Just, just one more thought on the um, 
the, the general review of the alarm registration system. In addition to looking at the revenue side of that, I'd like to look at the expense side of it. Um, you know, how many staff hours go into managing that program so we can understand what the actual margin is on that. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Well, George, Thank got you. a lot of stuff here. Yes. Thank you, Council. <laughs> Thank you. So this will take us to our next item, City Manager. All right. Did you call on me for the next item? I did. Okay, see. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so this is uh, in our continuing series of our CIP at a glance um, check-in. We like to give the council about three or four times a year an update on what's happening with some of the major projects. Uh, so here to give you uh, this quarter's check-in is our capital project manager, Rod Steitzer, and he's joined by Ray Steiger, and I think there's some other folks online as well to help out. Great. Rod. Thank you, city manager. Good evening, council, Madam Mayor. Um, happy to bring a continuation of our CIP update. Uh, we actually have a pretty full update for you today. We're covering not only some projects at the end, but uh, bringing back some information on our transportation improvement process, program process, the hearings and the adoption. Um, Ray is also here to help out with the follow-up on the 124th Avenue uh, pedestrian facility options. Uh, we actually added one other item that's not in your agenda packet, and that's an update on alternative public works contracting, uh, basically alternative deliveries. Um, but to get us kind of started, um, I wanted to kind of just share some statistics of what we're doing. We're, it's going full bore still, uh, 83 active projects, $184 million. We have 49 items or projects in design or bidding at this time. So still a lot on the horizon, and it's really great. Highlighted by a couple of the uh, events that actually just a couple of weeks ago we all met out on site at a couple of different places. The ribbon cutting for uh, the 116th Avenue, 124th Street uh, opening. That's that turn lane. Glad to see that done. And then also with the shovels and breaking ground for 100th Avenue. That's well underway now and progressing just as planned. So that's good. To get us started, though, a follow-up on the Transportation Improvement Program. Uh, this is really a follow-up of a question uh, council that you had um, last December uh, and actually last uh, July when we were coming for the hearing and adoption of the TIP program. So just as a quick summary, the TIP is a reflection of what's in the capital improvement program as well as in the capital facilities plan, and it's really just reflecting the transportation elements in those plans. Uh, the TIP, what it really does for us is it identifies projects that are either eligible or may become eligible for grant funding, uh, no matter what the source. Um, the process is governed in the RCW under the one on the screen there, 3577-0105. Uh, uh, and what that really says is that uh, every agency must adopt a con uh, this agency as well, City of Kirkland, uh, must adopt a comprehensive transportation program following a public hearing, and that has to be done before July 1 of each year. Um, since the adoption can happen between January 1, which is after the uh, CIP update and adoption in December, and July 1 of that year, um, the first part of it, the hearing part, can actually happen and be held at the same time as the hearing of the CFP and CIP processes. That can happen. Um, and our recommendation on this uh, 
item is to actually allow opportunity for public input and comment on the comprehensive planning as well as the financial planning of those improvement programs. Uh, so we recommend uh, but are open to thoughts and ideas holding the public hearing early January each year, followed by the adoption of the TIP. And so I'll just pause right there and uh, any questions or thoughts on the recommendation? Deputy Mayor Arnold. Well, it's great to hear that we have the option of combining the uh, hearings that we already have during the budget time for the CIP and what's required for the TIP. Uh, that's new information that's from what was in our packet. And I'd actually advocate for that because the time where we want to hear from the public is when we're making the decision around the budget and the projects that we're going to do. And I would hate to set expectations after we set the budget and said, here's the projects in our six-year CFP, finding out something the following January that, that we missed. I'd rather set expectations that we have the uh, single hearing and have that discussion during budget time and then formally adopt the TIP in January as soon as we can so it's all part of one cohesive process. Any other discussion? Councilmember Pascal. I'm just trying to kind of walk myself through the process. So in December, we adopt the CIP as part of the, um, the city budget. And that happens every two years. And then, so during that year where we, we have a major update of the CIP and we adopt um, the capital improvement program, then we would come back in January and hold a public hearing on just the transportation portion of the capital project uh, list and then make a confirmation that the transportation improvement program is, um, is finalized. Is that is that what is that what you're proposing? Se sequentially, that's yeah, that was the proposal. As Deputy Mayor Arnold um, points out, that hearing could happen at the same time as the CIP hearing and the CFP hearings as well. Okay, so the hearing could happen in December then, because we have to adopt the CIP in December, right? Right. right. And then we take formal action on the <clears throat> TIP later. Right. And I believe the CFP is typically in November. I just want to clarify, so the reason we were able to identify you could hold the public hearing earlier is actually a question we got from Council Member, um, excuse me, from Deputy Mayor Arnold, uh, asking if it could be held the previous year at the same time. So that wasn't information we had when we put out the memo and the initial staff recommendation. And then we were able to identify we could do that basically this afternoon. So it'd be a choice for the council to either combine all the public hearings at one time in the fall or late winter, or you could have a separate public hearing on the TIP in January. Okay. So, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm processing this in my mind as like a member of the public house. So they come in, public hearing, let's say, we wouldn't want it to be the last meeting in December because part of the issue is we want to have a public hearing to show that, mm -hmm. to hear from the public and perhaps not take action that night, right? Because um, having the public hearing on the same day as taking action makes it appear that you know, we, we, we're not gonna fully consider comments that, that we hear that evening because we're under pressure to, um, to, to take action that, that same evening. So we would hold a public hearing in November, 
then because we only have one council meeting in December and then take final action on the CIP in December. Um, and then the TIP would be adopted in January as part of the consent calendar. Correct. What we also do is go and um, okay. review the TIP with the Transportation Commission prior to the hearing as well. So that would be prior to November as well. Just the, just the TIP section. Okay. Yeah, I think how however we can combine it so it's just one process. I'm I'm totally in favor of the the two processes. Is I still have a hard time understanding. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's quite a bit, and there's there's a lot of input that can be received on all the different comprehensive plans and financial plans, so um, it's definitely not easy, um, but for the flexibility, um, those hearings can be held in that prior year or November, December, and then follow up with the adoptions in January. So I think it makes sense, but you might need to draw us a picture. <laughs> I love pictures. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. So um, we'll we'll come back and circle back with uh, maybe a flow chart or a picture of some kind, uh, kind of tying all these things together. Great. Uh, the next item we have, uh, 124th Avenue, a follow-up on the pedestrian facility options that's included in your packet. Uh, Ray Steiger is here. Um, maybe, Ray, I'll kind of step through this one, or do you want to step through this one? Yeah, so we're following up on a uh, LRM that we had earlier in the year regarding um, pedestrian facilities along 124th Avenue. Most of the west side has been completed. We have a couple segments that need to be done. We're working with developers. We actually have uh, one that we're doing under our job order contract this month. It's just kitty corner from the fire station. Uh, the other one is uh, north of there, uh, there are some challenges with wetland, and so the design is um, being going through permitting with the developer. Uh, one option would be to apply our money towards that and put in something interim. The development is active, pending, so um, that recommendation, uh, the 270000 would be a way of finishing that up so that by the end of the year we could, we could be underway with all the improvements on the west. And that... Um, addresses one of the items in our comp plan is that us having sidewalks on at least one side of all arterials. The east side, however, has um, quite a bit of undeveloped property. Most of the things that have occurred out there are with development. We haven't applied a lot of capital. Uh, we looked at a couple options on the east side, starting from um, the north side, Totem Lake, working our way south towards Boys and Girls Club, we could apply our capital money uh, through the CIP, and that would be about a little under $2 million. And again, that would be interim improvements. It's an asphalt path. Those would go away once the properties, adjacent properties developed. We would also not be purchasing any right-of-way. Uh, the ultimate build-out of 124th Avenue is envisioned in the uh, North Rose Hill plan and in our comp plan has 40 feet, 80 feet total. Uh, we currently have 60 feet and 30 on each side. So unless development occurs, um, we don't get that extra property dedicated. Uh, we could complete the entire thing uh, from 90th down to 108th, um, which is another 
Um, and then what we're also looking at is if we were to do the build-out, which will install sidewalks and a wide planter strip, uh, we have property acquisition. We would look at doing a grant that's beyond the capacity of our capital program, um, and that would be uh, about $6.5 million. <clears throat> I guess where do you want us to go from here just to conclude so the recommendation in the memo was that these options will be explored as part of the CIP process next year unless council wanted to redirect that in this meeting so uh, we're assuming we'd compare all these in the priorities of the budget process in the CIP in 2024 for the six year going on but we also want to check in and see if council wanted to redirect that today uh, Councilmember Nixon uh, well, I'll just say I like the idea of both. So I'd like to see us do the interim improvements to have at least a clean and stable walking surface in the interim and then have the discussion about what the next step would be. Um, I don't know how hard that would be to find the 270000 but do that as an interim, interim thing. I think we can... Bring options for the 270. What to the update that we're bringing to the council in November, and you know you can make that decision as part of the the mid buy budget update. I agree with Councilmember Nixon. I think that's the obvious thing that we have to do to get one complete surface. Um, the others are an awful lot of money, and will be nice to do. What concerns me as as we open up the the new lanes is that street is getting so much utilization that um, it just puts it more at risk for people not being willing to cross the street in order to use the, the sidewalks. So ultimately, we may have to reevaluate where this sits in our CIP anyway. Councilmember Pascal. Yeah, thanks for bringing this to us. Um, I know it took a little bit more time to bring back this LRM than, than others because this is this is a difficult and challenging uh, situation. And I appreciate that the changes that we did make to, to allow for some interim improvements and to work with development as it occurs. Um, and I know that um, some of the public and constituents that reached out to us early on this, they, I, I did talk with them and they're very appreciative of what we've done and where we're headed. Yeah, I, I, I just see a lot of changes coming to 124th corridor with the widening to the north through Totem Lake, um, the growth in both both our urban centers, right, 80, 85th and, and Totem Lake. This is kind of the primary connector besides 405. Um, and then the K-Line, obviously. And, and for, a, for a, a, a transit system to be fully functional and safe, you need to be able to access, uh, get access on both sides, right? So having, having um, an incomplete sidewalk system on one side does create some challenges and barriers to really kind of seeing the full benefits of uh, a bus rapid transit system. So you know, definitely want to be thinking about that and making sure we're, we're um, ahead of that schedule as much as we can be. Um, and then, you know, the, the map that was added to the, the, the memo showed, uh, you know, the, the parcels and the, where those undeveloped um, sidewalks are. 
you know, are we, you know, as part of the comp plan, are we thinking, what are we thinking about how to encourage redevelopment there? Um, there are large parcels um, that are going to be fronting a um, high-frequency um, transit corridor, so I hope that we can, we can also think about that. Um, and then finally about kind of just doing kind of interim or kind of lower cost improvements, I, I would say that I'm always in favor of that. Any way that we can do that, I don't want perfection to get in the way of um, a safe pedestrian facility, right? Um, so the more that we can do that, the better, and the safe crossings to get to the west side so people can use it without having to walk a few blocks on the, on the east side. So it's all challenging, and I agree. I mean, we have to look at it in the context of the Fuller City. There's a lot of needs. Yeah. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you. So the map was very helpful, and I do agree that we should do the interim on the west side. What I can't tell on this map that was included, there's three crosswalks that are incomplete. Have we what I suspect is happening is it's difficult for people to cross to the, the west side. So have we also evaluated if there's a need and an opportunity for additional crosswalks? Um, I'll uh, check with our transportation team, just see how f the extents of what they've done on crosswalks, but I do know crosswalks have been evaluated um, citywide, anyways. Okay, because I can't, I can only see on this map where they're incomplete. Yeah. I would be curious where the ones exist. Good point. Go ahead. Brad. I would also add that um, we had a pretty robust outreach process for both the school walk routes and for active transportation, and, and those were at the forefront. We have uh, the, the, the TBD, the Transportation Benefit District, which we'll, we're building projects now, um, didn't necessarily identify a high level on those. There is one at the Boys and Girls Club that mm -hmm. we've recently enhanced, and then there's a crossing associated with our, um, our greenways up a little bit further north where we have our RFBs. Uh, so additional feedback probably with the community, but that's a pretty recent... Uh, community outreach and unfortunately we didn't that didn't those didn't rise high on our level but you know in light of recent um we had a, a fatality out there um in a section with sidewalk um, those are things that we we take into account with new evaluations that's new information it, it is exactly what uh, council member pascal said about the change in the urban area and the new uh riders uh, on 85th so mm -hmm. if you're on i'm sorry did, did i cut i was done Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, I also support doing the interim improvements um, this year in the mid-buy and looking at uh, options B and C in our next budget cycle. I also think that from the comments from Councilmember Pascal and the Mayor, we've hit on something that I um, support where the Mayor was saying there's some areas where the road is wide enough that people just don't cross the street. And I am wondering... Up to this point, our standard has been arterials will have sidewalks on one side. And I'm wondering if there are certain arterials that that's not going to be, that we need to raise the standard. That's not going to be good enough. And Councilmember Pascal has mentioned transit service, frequent transit service is one indicator on that. There may be others. So as we look at the transportation master plan, I'd like to look at saying, is there a set of arterials that we want to say 
our, our standard is we're going to have sidewalks on both sides. Because I think we, we, we've identified 124th as one of those. There may be others. Thank you. Thank you for that. Anybody else? Thank you, Ray. Ray's done a lot of work on this, and uh, it is a pretty complex issue. So thank you. Um, another thing, this is the new item that we added into the PowerPoint that wasn't in the agenda, and that's just an update on where we are on what's referred to as alternative public works contracting. Uh, that is in the RCW. And, and really what it does is it allows us um, some flexibility and, and options as to how you contract work out. So right now, traditionally, what we do is we design things and then go through a low bidding process. Um, but in some cases, on some projects, there's an alternative way to do that, and that's finding the best suited designers and contracting team to help you get through that process. Uh, we see this going on at with, on 405 with the interchanges that are going on right now. Uh, and a lot of jurisdictions have kind of moved in this direction as one of their tools for delivery. Uh, especially in the vertical world, uh, there's a lot of alternative procurement that happens there. Uh, what this does, let me silence this. Um, sorry about that. Um, what it does is it provides more reliable costing. So as you go through these process, you get the contractor and designer working as a team, uh, identifying specific measures and work that has to be done. And that ultimately leads you to a more reliable costing or estimating. Um, it does help ensure faster timelines because those are both going in the um, same direction at the same time. You don't necessarily have to go in a very sequential frame of mind when you're thinking about developing these projects. And then as that team gets together, you have increased quality, which lowers the risk for change orders. Um, in fact, in these processes, they don't even refer to them as change orders. They refer to them as amendments to the work because it's an agreed-upon measure. Um, so what we've been doing is uh, we've been talking about this a lot internally. We have a lot of large projects on, on the horizon. What is the best way to deliver them? Uh, so we've been working very closely with city attorney's office, uh, finance, and other departments to explore these options. Um, and, and just as a quick side note here, all of these alternative processes still carry the same approval process. Council would still be awarding contracts, and as updates and presentations and statuses come along on some of these projects, uh, those would be brought forward as well for decisions and timeliness of getting the projects done. Um, we did a lot of this background information at a workshop that we held. We held the workshop on September 28th. Uh, we had a number of guest panels. That's the picture that's on the right there. Um, you'll see six people there, three of which were representing owners that do this type of work, and three were representing professionals in the industry that do this work. So we we're getting a balanced mix of information and, and uh, support. Uh, it was a really great workshop, well attended, a um, lot of good information. Uh, some of the things that we did cover were the different types of alternatives that you can use in your toolbox to help deliver and implement projects. Uh, we also went over what are some of the criteria of why would you select one project over another? What's the best way to do that? And then we went through pros and cons. Um, 
I, I, we wanted to bring this forward and then also highlight that the first step is to kind of review code uh, changes, and that's coming up later in the business uh, part of the um, meeting tonight that we will have that discussion. Maybe I should go back and pause there. Any questions on alternative? Questions or comments? Uh, Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So uh, just one one comment. Uh, I appreciate if yeah, if you go back to that slide, I appreciate that um, the alternative public works contracting process still needs council approval. Um, and I'm assuming in connection to that approval, uh, staff will provide us with information about um, you know the cost effectiveness of that that. But taking it on a, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, and I'm not sure we know exactly how it's going to work yet. Um, but just looking at it on a project-by-project project basis is going to be really difficult because we are going to have a difficulty understanding what the alternative would have looked like if we had done something other than the alternative. So the alternative to the alternative, which would be, you know, current status quo uh, or <laughs> current <laughs> SOP. Um, so I just want to make sure, I'm sure this is true because of the way that Kirkland um, handles its financing and um, taxpayer revenue. I just want to make sure that we have a ongoing uh, measures of the success of this, um, that we've thought about what the measures of success are going to be uh, and how we're going to sort of measure that on an ongoing basis to make sure. Um, I mean, there might be several criteria, but one of them is going to be our responsibility to the taxpayers that, that when we're using this model that um, it's uh, fiscally responsible and it's um, uh, responsible use of, of taxpayer dollars. Um, Again, I feel like I'm speaking to the choir because we have a staff that's on top of this kind of thing, but um, our, our folks in the public and, uh, and uh, whatnot and ourselves, just it's good to remind ourselves and remind staff and, and let the public know that that's the way we're going to approach this. So, um, any, <clears throat> any response to that? No, I just uh, absolutely. The whole point of our exploration of this, which was led by Rod and by Juliander, what the public works director was, finding ways to save money and... Uh, improve speed and reliability of delivery of the project. So we wouldn't propose one to you if we didn't believe it was going to be um, saving money over the alternative. And we'd go through that evaluation before we brought it to you and then explain that. So it's it's a good point to remember. But that's the purpose of it would be it would be better and cheaper. Otherwise, we wouldn't want to do it. Yep. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Yeah, thank you. So, you, Rod, you talked a bit about the benefits of alternative contracting. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, the impacts that you've heard from speaking with the industry? Yeah, so um, the impacts are what comes up. What really one thing, the number one thing that you really need to concentrate on is timely decisions. So as we schedule work and implement projects or start on a path of projects, uh, the timeliness of decisions is key in the in each of these models. If you can't hit the timeliness of that, uh, you're really jeopardizing the efficiency of how that model works. Another one is there is some requirements uh, that we'll have to put together. We do have to meet qualifications for a state board to review. So we would work with our consultants and um, uh, contractors on that to make sure that we ensure those qualifications are met. And then lastly, um, there might be some need for internal discussion about what processes might have to change in these processes. Uh, for example, permitting. Uh, we would need to be basically 
developing and designing and constructing the project in a very tight timeline, uh, which isn't traditionally how our permit reviews happen. Our permit reviews currently happen in the design process primarily, where you're looking at 30, 60 percent, 90 percent intervals. Uh, so we would need to integrate that and have that review process going on. Um, no, thank you for that. Some, did you, you happen to see the recent Seattle Times article a few weeks ago about the design build process that WashDOT has been kind of seen? Um, I, I may have seen that. Yeah, it, I think what they kind of landed on was that, and this is kind of going to some of the other discussions we're having, is that they're seeing less and less competition uh, for design builders um, because it's a, it puts more risk on the design build team. It basically takes yes. the risk from the city and moves it on to the contracting. So therefore, you 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 are going to get different pe different organizations bidding on and going after this work. And so, what Washdot's experience is a re reduction in the number of contractors pursuing this, and that has bid up the price of 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 the projects. Um, so that would be something to, to be thinking about because um, that's, that's a recent thing that's been happening over the last few years. The other things that uh, it would be nice for us to explore a little bit more as we make a decision is that, like you said, it requires a different level of expertise to manage these. Mm -hmm. So completely different staff skill sets, processes. You're changing the, the workflow within an organization. Um, it actually attracts a completely different set of designers and contractors than would normally bid on city projects. Mm -hmm. uh, what I've seen is that many design builders are out-of-state companies, um, big, large, uh, multinational firms. Um, so you're, you don't necessarily attract local, smaller uh, businesses that you would normally get um, from the, the the other procurement alternative that results in less diversity of submitters um, because they're not willing to take on that additional risk. You need to have much bigger wallets, pocketbooks to take on that risk. And that um, many design build projects result in litigation and litigation is actually seen as a cost of doing business. And that's all the back end that you don't see either um, and so that, those are things that we need to be thinking about. And I only point this out because I've had some, some really poor experiences with that, that contracting alternative in my profession and, um, and some good ones. Yeah. And, but it's a completely different animal. And, and before we get too far into it, it'd be nice to make sure we thought through all, all the upsides and the downsides of that. Yeah. Those are great comments, and uh, as we kind of evolve this uh, concept, uh, we can kind of include a little bit more in-depth conversation and description about some of those cons uh, as our, in our next update. Great, Ron. Okay. Um, uh, right into the project update, this is probably going to be more of a rapid-fire kind of, I'm checking the time here. I think we're okay. Um, before we get started on this, uh, we are holding uh, what we're going to refer to as a capital improvement forum on October 24th. I've got a slide later in the deck uh, that's open to the public and you can uh, attend that. Uh, anyone can attend. 
Um, but as we get started here on the projects, a lot of highlights, a lot of activity going on. Uh, 100th Avenue underway. Um, wanted to highlight a couple of things here. Um, there, we're, we are maintaining two-way traffic during the construction of this project. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some very short times where, you know, you might have to do some paving or some other thing. Uh, but, you know, one, two-day kind of a nice. But we're going to be maintaining two-way traffic. Um, and we have been working and, and working very closely with some of the franchise utilities. We also have been working closely with North Shore Utility on this project as it's this section's in their jurisdiction. Our fire stations, I think the big bullet uh, here is the last two of the fire station programs. Uh, we're tracking on budget. Uh, we're tracking on budget, which is great. Uh, Annika and team have been doing really great on this. Uh, and I think I did include this in the last one, but Fire Station 21, we actually advanced the timing of that one up, which is a cost savings kind of measure, also an efficiency for developing the design of the projects and things like that. Uh, on the right is what we're referring to as our kind of dashboard that we use to review these projects with the consulting team. Uh, and if you look on the bar graph, um, there's a couple of separations with the uh, orange and blue on the lower part. That's showing that advancement of the Fire Station 21 schedule. So uh, this one is going, uh, so far we've had a couple of hiccups with a couple of things, but we're doing pretty good and keeping things under control on this one with the delivery. Uh, safer routes to school. Let's see, Ray is still here, um, and the um, speech typing here is covering up maybe uh, one of the most important bullet points, but uh, Safer Routes to School program, uh, we have hired our two staff, two staff have now been here six weeks uh, and integrating very well. Uh, in fact, they sit right next to Ray and uh, every day there's a lot of inter engagement and interaction going on, so they're coming up to speed. And what that's doing is um, allowing us to actually uh, work on some of the projects that were slated for 2024 a little sooner. For example, 18 bike lanes, which we're going to start in first quarter 2024, we're pulling that in to start in 2023. So uh, that's been going pretty well. Um, wanted to highlight our Lake Street Pedestrian Scramble project. Uh, this month is the month that we're going to advertise that. Uh, the construction, though, is starting later in March of 2024. And the reason we wanted to do that, one, we wanted to make sure we're timing everything correctly with Puget Sound Energy. And the other thing is long lead times. This is a signal. Signal systems have long lead times, so we want to make sure we get out ahead and order those materials. Our 124th Avenue, we uh, talked about this during the 124th update. Uh, increasing the number of lanes. Uh, the big thing here is we are now reached um, all of our paperwork with WashDOT to obligate the construction. So we're going to be advertising this one in starting in November. Uh, it'll be about a month-long advertisement to attract the most uh, qualified contractors that want to do this type of work. And we do plan on using flaggers and uniform officers to help control traffic on this one, especially access to and from some of the adjacent businesses. We will also have an approved pedestrian bicycle routes around the work that's going on out there. Uh, and in the picture, we can see the proximity to the Totem Lake Connector Bridge. 
Juanita Drive, another one that's um, progressing along here, advertise early November, construction early 2024. So that is going along. I believe we now have reached agreement with all uh, easements that are needed. So um, looking forward to seeing that get signed up and moving forward on that one. Um, I think we had an update on our Slater and CKC crossing project last time. I think the big update here is we have been in touch with WashDOT and we requested them to move the funding forward to the 2325 biennium um, just to make sure that we can deliver the project as we're kind of scheduling it here. And then um, I did want to touch on uh, the investments that are happening around 405 and 85th, our coordinated work with Sound Transit. Um, so the projects are shown in the, the graphic on the right there. Um, and the progression of the projects are being shown there. So our project on the left with the star, uh, we're still slated at this time for construction start quarter two, 2024. Um, the third lane, quarter three, 2024 and the water main relocation is currently underway. Uh, we actually were able to negotiate the earthquake resilient pipe for that project, so 2,300 feet, which is great. Um, the big uh, bullet here on this one is we do continue to work with Sound Transit, and we'll be meeting with them later this month to kind of talk about some of the expenses on the projects and funding and how we can um, really make these projects deliver on those same schedules. I uh, wanted a private update. I know Jessica's been doing really great with her grant report updates that she emails out. That was a really great thing that she's done. Um, but highlighting a couple of things, uh, I think the top bullet really kind of captures my attention. 39 capital grants versus 28 in 2022. Uh, recent awards also associated with our Transportation Benefit District is that very top one for $600,000. What this does is puts a sidewalk connection between 405 and 116th Avenue uh, on 124th Street, so right where the freeway, the southbound freeway exit is on 405, completes that gap, which is great, long time needed there. Um, we also secured our Gold Hill Drainage Improvements Grant for $500,000, completing the uh, funding needed for that project, so keeping that one on track. Um, and a number of other grants. Let's see, I'll check my time again here, make sure. I think I got enough to run through this. Um, four different types of grants. Jessica has been doing great work on this. Uh, our Vision Zero Action Plan update. Uh, we have what's referred to as an SS4A grant for that, Safer Streets and Roads for All. Um, we have a TIB grant, Transportation Improvement Board grant. Um, this is for crossing at Lake Washington, uh, Institute of Technology on 132nd Avenue, um, right close to 120th Street there. Uh, reconnecting Communities Pilot Program. Um, this is commonly the RCP program. So this is Lake Washington Boulevard and Multimodal Connection Study. So that's something I know we've talked about in the past. So get a grant of 160000 to do that. And then a fairly large grant, the SMART grant, uh, Strength, Mobility, and uh, revolutionizing transportation grant. Um, it's basically for traffic signal performance measures. Uh, so $1.9 million. So that's really good. 
Uh, this is a slide I mentioned earlier. This is the ad additional outreach we're doing in the Capital Improvement Program, uh, October 24th at noon. Um, we're gonna hold what's called the Capital Projects Forum, uh, where uh, anybody can register at the web link shown there um, and attend, learn more about some of the high profile projects or the projects there. But uh, there's actually two parts to that uh, forum. The second part is going to be taking the shores to stores to shores greenway project and stepping through what we have as the current 30% design and receiving feedback on that. So a good community engagement opportunity. Um, that's my last slide. So just want to make sure that. Well, great report, Rod. This oh, is thanks. A bundle of work. Yeah. And you guys are on top of it. So thank you for the report. Okay. And uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you. Um, two, two questions um, adjacent to your report. Appreciate the update. On the coordination with Sound Transit on 85th, your update was about the city-run projects that look like they're on track. Oh. Uh, will we be getting any information on Sound Transit's overall project because uh, that has the potential to be quite disruptive? Yes, and Julie, I'm not sure if you want to take this one, but I think. I, I know we are planning to bring back an update to council on the WashDOT project, so you can get a little bit more details. Obviously, the public sees what's happening out there, so we definitely want to bring that back. Um, in fact, I was just um, brainstorming when would be the, a good timing for that, hopefully in before the end of the year. And I, um, secondly, I just wanted to Acknowledge I got to see some of the neighborhood association briefings on the shores to store stores to shores greenway and that proposal is routed down a very steep hill 97th in the highlands and I just wanted to acknowledge we received a lot of feedback. I see Julie's <laughs> exhaling there a lot of feedback on whether that will work as a greenway and I hope we have a, a, a chance to respond to that feedback. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I think with unless everybody gets an electric bike, we're going to have to put a ski lift in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Councilmember Nixon. Gondola. Yeah, I've, I've heard the feedback on the stores to shore from several people as well. I think I think we may all have people a little skeptical um, and concerned that 30% usually means things are pretty locked in and they still want to see some changes. Um, I did. I did want to comment on the 85th station. Um, we've gotten a lot of feedback at some recent public meetings from people who are very concerned about how traffic will be rerouted during construction. And generally, the feedback is there. As far as we know, there hasn't been any opportunity for public input into that. And um, I don't know if that's scheduled or not, but it would be very helpful to be able to um, hear from DOT what their plans are for public engagement on the detours and such around that area uh, and the impact on the adjacent neighborhoods. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, made a note of that. And I know that we have been uh, looking conceptually at least at some of those upcoming um, needs for rerouting or detours and things like that. So I know our transportation group is, is looking at that really hard. 
Great. Uh, Councilman Pascal? Yeah, I thank you for putting on this forum this, this next week um, on the capital projects. Uh, I think I th I th I'm hopeful that, that there'll be a good attendance. And is that something, though, that, that you plan on, on recording so that folks that can't attend, they can, they can watch it back later? We absolutely can. Mm -hmm. And the only project that I would, I would just inquire about as potentially another high public interest is, is the Kirkland Way Lake Street uh, intersection project that you know oh. will be starting in March. And and I, I tell people about that project, um, and most don't know that that's you know going to be occurring, and that the, there will be some pretty significant impacts for mm -hmm. folks that do. You know, typically traveled through downtown. I know the businesses are are aware of it, um, but I'm not sure how much the greater public is. So that that could be a, a, a another one just to share a little bit about, mm -hmm. since yeah. that's we can add that. um, pretty Im imminent. And hopefully, we'll get some um, promotion and press on this week in Kirkland's podcast. Mm -hmm. I would just like to add, I, I know I just took the slide down, but um, if you, some of the council members have asked about individual projects and sort of like scope, schedule, budget, those sorts of things. But if you actually go to the capital projects website that's linked at the very end of that last slide that's on the what we're going to push out, there's a really detailed list of the projects and each of them has its own link and you can, I don't know if Rod, if you can actually click on it or not. Uh, it's, not, not, it's not a live link right now. Yeah, it's not live. Well, actually it should be. Uh, I put it in there. So one of the things that's cool about this is you can go to an individual project and get update, but at the very bottom of it, if you scroll all the way down, there's our capital project interactive map, <clears throat> which is something the council asked for kind of years ago that we keep updating. And you can click on that and it actually shows you locations. And you can actually then zero in on a project and click on that and you can get as much detail kind of as you want for each of these projects going in. So uh, for members of the public or for council members, if you want to like see what's happening in an individual project, you can, you can get that by following those links. Great. Any further discussion? Okay. You done with us? We're done uh, with you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay. With that, we will adjourn, and we will be back in session at 730. Thank you. Kathy, did you talk to Andrew? Thank you. We're live. Thank you. We are back in session following a study <clears throat> session on a universal low-income program and capital improvement program updates. We are item number five, communications. This is the time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing, of which there are none scheduled this evening. Please limit your remarks to three minutes, and the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of each issue. If you are present, either in person or virtually, and would like to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star 9 to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order in which they have signed up. <coughs> items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting, and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. 
We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, signs and placards are not allowed in council chambers during our meetings regardless of their content. Clerk, will you please? We have one person signed up to speak. It's Lisa McConnell. Welcome, Ms. McConnell. Good evening, Council, City Manager. I'm here tonight to talk about um, Resolution 5604 that you um, discussed at your last meeting, the one disallowing electronic visual aids during items from the audience. I have passed out my paper copy to you, um, which was a quick review of um, uh, how to give public comments at different meetings, like Hearing Examiner, City Council, Transportation Commission, the DRB, um, and I think the hearing examiner guidelines um, that are on page two um, state that um, ex exhibits such as photos and maps and that sort of thing can illustrate or make a point or for clarity or understanding of the testimony. And aside, they use the word PowerPoint as for John's um, comments last time, you may wanna look at that in your guidelines. Um, I uh, was, a bit shocked and uh, dismayed that you disallowed um, this kind of expression at items for the audience. I've used it many a time, and three minutes is not a very long time to make your point to council or any of the commissions, and uh, uh, especially on uh, difficult items like transportation items that I often bring up, a map will speak a thousand words that I cannot or do not have the time to explain to people. Um, also, um, anybody who is a millennial or younger is a digital native, and this is how they are um, comfortable um, expressing themselves and understanding the world, is in a digital format. They're used to this format, and if you want to encourage all voices to be heard, I would encourage um, that the voice with a digital format um, be encouraged rather than restricted or disallowed. Um, a TED Talk is a perfect example of the power of having a talk as well as digital media to express your idea, clarify your idea, and uh, present data in a very um, concise form. Um, I would recommend that you uh, devise a way to have a secure portal that you could submit material to and place a pre-meeting submittal deadline so that um, you have time to process for security reasons or content reasons uh, for electronic format. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. We don't have anyone else signed up to speak, but we do have a virtual audience member. Oh, now we have two virtual audience members with their hands up. Oh, nope, we're back to one. Um, but there's no name associated, so we'll promote the phone number and ask for their identify, ask them to identify themselves. Okay. Hello. I'm not sure if anyone could hear me, but um, we, we I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Yep. Can you, I give, can hear you. Can you give us your name, please? Talia. 
What is your whole name? Uh, Talia Nauman. Thank you, Talia. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I have more of a question. I mean, I guess there are three minutes to speak, but I don't like have a lot of speaking um, that I really want to contribute. I just have a question and, and if someone can speak on it, that's great. If not, you know, I I'm just don't see the information on the website. Um, so I looked at, um, um, there's so I looked up, you actually have a something on your website. So there's like this May, 20, May 17, 2023, um, City to Unveil New Crosswalk with Intersect Inclusive Progressive Flag. I didn't look at it before. I just saw it when I was going on my walk and stuff, you know, over these months. Um, so, you know, I think that was like, the idea was, you know, kind of a good intention. Um, so but then at the end of June, it was not removed and it's kind of already October. Um, so like, when is that gonna be removed? the intention is not to remove it. Um, oh. Who should I have her contact? Uh, talk to Julie Underwood, the Public Works Director. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you the number. You can ask for our Public Works um, Director. Okay. Public Works. Public Works Director. The telephone number is 425-587-5800. Okay. Three zero zero zero. So public works director, and that's that's just going to stay there. It is a permanent for how long? Installation. Like, oh wow. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Well, Th thanks. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We don't have anyone else signed up. Is there anyone else in the? in the chambers who wishes to address the council at this time. You are a special presentation, yeah. my dear. Oh, please. <clears throat> I'm Louina Hawkinson and I live in Kirkland and I agree with Lisa that we should be able to have PowerPoints before a meeting uh, from items from the audience. I understand security and how thumb drive can bring in a virus or something, so I had to send in my PowerPoint early, and that it works for me, and that way people won't be shooting from the hip. So, Thank anyway, you. I just agree. Okay, then I'm going to declare this items from the audience period closed. Before we have a motion on the consent, is that? No. Next item is special presentations. Uh -huh. Welcome, Louita. Thank you. Are we ready? There we go. Okay, I'm Louita Hawkinson, and I'm representing Kirkland Heritage Society. I live in Kirkland, and the reason I'm presenting this is we were at the Kirkland Heritage Society was having a board meeting, and they asked how we happened to get the space below Heritage Hall. And I was really kind of dumbfounded because I know, and I couldn't believe they didn't know, but as I looked around, nine board members, 
I'm the only one there that was there when the building was moved and restored. And so I put together a little PowerPoint to show them. And so and then I started to thinking about the council. How many on the council were here? Annie was here. Kathy's not on the council, but she was here. <laughs> hmm? Okay, so you know what happened. So anyway, I thought, well, I'll just present it to the council just as an informational thing. And for, for the citizens of Kirkland, if you were born here 26, 27 years ago, that building has always been on the corner. If you came here 24 years ago and were an adult, it's always been on the corner. Maybe you knew that it moved, but you didn't know where it moved from. So this is the PowerPoint I presented. All these photos are from the late Bob Burke and the late Dale. And, and I'm, not, I'm not that kind of late. <laughs> 1922, the church building would be rubble in landfill if not for the cooperation on energy provided by the city of Kirkland and Kirkland Heritage Society. Because of their joint efforts, Kirkland has Heritage Hall. It was a teamwork from the beginning. Now, if anyone has questions, please ask. Just stop me cold. This isn't a long presentation. The original address was 221st Street. Here's the building ready to go. Uh, moved on April 29th, 1999. Coming down First Street now, that's just starting to hit um, Central. Being backed in, see, look at how Heritage Park looks back then. Now this had to be done in a hurry. There was no foundations. The foundation had to be built under the building after it was moved. Now, here it is under construction. Um, under the pillars, you see that brick. I don't know how thick, that, uh, not brick, it's cement. I don't know how thick it is, but it's very, it is very, very thick. And our archives are under there. There's 24 foot by about six, seven inch, um, feet deep. And it's climate controlled archive under the steps. The lower level under construction, the space was designed by Bob Burke for Her Kirkland Heritage Society to be used as a historical resource center. And there was the old tennis courts that were put together. But with volunteer work, I must say. KHS provided much of the grant work. I think that's Mary Alice Burley there. It was a long process. Just 
Dale Hawkins and my husband is there on the ladder. That's my late husband. Then, in 2000, the city and the KHS received, um, the city and KHS efforts were recognized by being awarded the first John Spellman Award for Historic Preservation. And so both the city got one of these plaques and KHS got one of the plaques. Now you get a paper certificate. <laughs> the work continued. 2001, that's um, Bick Newhart at the base of the ladder. Kirkland Heritage Society used to be in charge of all the decorating. Vic would get up on that ladder and put up the bunting, put up the garland. There's our crew. There's Bob Burke in the center. Mary Alice there on the, on the right. I did some of the work. That's me. Then we did all the planting as well. We were so thankful when the city finally took over the maintenance of the grounds. 2003. They're both gone now, but architect Bob Burke did much of the planning for Heritage Hall. He was a city planner and an architect. Now, my husband, Dale, he was a system, system engineer, which is a very big thing back in the 2000s. It's no big, it's not a deal now, but it was then. And he put in all the cable and the phone lines for the network. And it, until recently, I don't think the city uses it now, but I, until recently, the city used that same network. And here we are, the front walk is going in. There's Bob getting ready to plant, getting ready for the flagpole to go in. The Kirkland Women's Club donated the new flagpole, and KHS donated the energy. The front steps are going in, or the front walkway is going in. Barb is there. There she is. <laughs> and then Bob Burke at the ribbon cutting, and I think that says 2003 when we finally, and it was not ready for occupancy at all, but you had to set a date. So we set a date. We didn't make the date. So there wasn't anything going on inside. Now, Heritage Hall still needed some finishing touches, but was open for the first meeting for the Norkirk neighborhood in 2004, and that's Larry Springer up there. Mm -hmm. The town of Kirkland incorporated in 1905. In 2005, Kirkland celebrated its centennial. Heritage Hall was open with historic displays. The upstairs, we, we were open with volunteers. I, don't, I can't remember how long it was, but it was a long time that we were there. All of February. All of February? Mm -hmm. Few? Good memory. 
Peter Kirk's clothing. Those are now downstairs in the museum downstairs. With the upstairs ready for use and the centennial over, KHS started putting its energy into the lower level. There's Bob. Oh, and that's Sue and Sans Contreras. He's gone too, Dave Tucker. I did some work inside. Now that's my husband, Dale. He would come home every night and have dinner, change his clothes, and go down to the hall and work until all hours. Went on for hours, went on for months, and he put in all the lines. We used to have four computers. People didn't have a computer back then, so it, sometimes all four computers were running. break. Barbara brought muffins every all for all the work party. Can you imagine how our shoulders felt after painting the ceilings? Cute as ever, Marilee Dix. Mm -hmm. Now she was, she was testing out all of our pins, and I wanted to save that piece as a, as a piece of art, and it disappeared. The lower level was not ready for researchers until 2006. The Resource Center is now a mini museum as well. It is still a work in progress. That's the main room as you come in. That light is from the Hotel Jackson. The Leland family donated that just two years ago. That's the school corner. Every, everything in, <coughs> excuse me, everything in the museum is from Kirkland. Peter Kirk's clothes in there. Baseball corner for Baseball Town USA. You can see if we have a bit of space, we use it. It's getting cluttered. It looks cluttered, but it boy, people come back day after you know, week after week, they'll come in. That is the, oh, from the French family. They have all their tool chests, every, their sewing machine, the desk. That came from Maine in 17, 1972 when they came here. 1872. Doors aren't even safe. <laughs> that's it. And I would like to say also that Bob Burke saved the city hundreds of thousands of dollars by being architect and overseer. He organized uh, the work parties. Dale 
with his ability to put in the wiring and get everything going saved thousands and thousands of dollars. So it was a work, you know, it was just team spirit. And I think we've lost a little of that right now, but I hope we get it back. So that's it. Any questions? Louida, how many, how many stones have been laid, do you know? We're not doing it anymore, but... I know that. Yeah. I just wonder how many pavers we've... Hundreds. Yeah. Yeah, hundreds. I don't know. Great. You can go count them. <laughs> Good point. Well, thank you very much for this presentation. Sure. And thank, thank you, you for, for... your time. Thank you for hanging in there with the with the Heritage Society and you too, Barbara. Um, it's, it's remarkable. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a joy. I'm never... I'm never bored. I'm boring... <laughs> I think care. Barbara, did you want to add something? We sold pavers, mm -hmm. and um, we raised a quarter. The Kirkham Heritage Society raised a quarter of a million dollars. You know, for our little group, that was huge. It still is huge. <laughs> So um, it, was, it was a work of love. Every single one of the Heritage Society members, as Louita said to me last week, they all had a paintbrush at some time or other. And I was known as the muffin lady because when the building was lifted, I was underneath it a lot, and I was in... With uh, because I was fascinating about fa fascinated about moving a building, and um, so I was up there all the time, and I'd bring muffins to the workmen, and so they let me, you know, be underneath the building while they were putting in all the cribbing, and then the building sat for two years down at the foot of of Market Street and, and on the corner there, mm -hmm. um, there was a bit of a disagreement with some property owners. So anyway, we're very glad. It's, you know, it's such a symbol of Kirkland, and it was um, a total work of love, and Robert was fabulous. Um, of course, I'm prejudiced. Anyway, thanks. Was, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Okay, that takes us to item number eight, our consent calendar. Before we have a motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to present an audit of the accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $4,093,659.38 and bills in the amount of $6,045,586.20. Excellent. Can I get a motion to, to proceed with the consent calendar? Second. Been moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Black. Any discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. That takes us to our business agenda. The first business agenda item huh. is the potential acquisition of Houghton Park and Ride. City Manager. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So first, a uh, special thank you to Diana Hart, who's uh, doing the slideshow for me remotely. I'll be giving the presentation. Um, I'd also like to give a special thanks to our city attorney, Kevin Raymond and our Deputy City Manager of Operations, Beth Goldberg, and her last week here before she left the city, she and Kevin worked together to 
finish this off and make this presentation uh, so it's available for council action. So, uh, so we're going to talk about the potential acquisition of the park and ride and uh, looking for two actions today. One is approval of the resolution. There's also an attached fiscal note and we forgot to request that the council have a motion to approve the fiscal note, so I'll come back to that after the resolution. Uh, so just brief background. As you know, WashDOT about two years ago concluded that the park and ride property was surplus to its needs, and they sent out a letter stating that and offering uh, cities and county uh, to express interest. Uh, the city of Kirkland immediately, with your permission, expressed our interest in purchasing the property. Uh, King County kind of went back and forth for a while, but ultimately concluded that they weren't going to purchase the property. And so for the last about nine months, we've been working straight with WashDOT to be the only purchaser. Um, as you know, the site is about 5.5 acres, and it was appraised by WashDOT with their appraisal at a fair market value of $9 million uh, without the easement on it that we'll talk about in a second. Um, WashDOT subsequently, after uh, identifying that $9 million purchase price, determined that they need an easement across the property for a potential uh, roadway improvement that's part of the I-405 master plan. Um, it's the intersection of Northeast 70th Place and 116th, and I'll have a short graphic to show you in a second. And as you also know, as we talked about many times, uh, this property is intended to be the site for the Aquatic and Recreation Center if Proposition 1 is approved by the voters of Kirkland in November. So we are also, we haven't made any particular um, decisions or recommendations about what to do with the property if it's not, but uh, council has uh, generally said public purpose, uh, so parks, other potential public purposes, uh, including housing and so forth. But obviously our hope is that we'll just be using it for the intended purpose with, with the approval of the ballot measure. Uh, next slide, please. So this is an attachment that we received after the packet uh, from WashDOT. It's a draft. It gives an indication of the easement area. And <clears throat> so one of the topics that we're still working on with WashDOT in the quick claim deed is we need to make sure that their very detailed description of the easement actually lines up with this graphic. So. Uh, one of the tasks that we have over the next couple of weeks is to get a title report from um, the state and sort of lock that down. We just want to make sure that the easement uh, is where it's supposed to be. So you can see on here, there's an orange triangle um, on your upper left, um, and then there's a sort of a thick line that delineates it, and then the blue, uh, which is to the south, to your, uh, to your left, excuse me, the orange is on the right. Um, the property easement would be in that orange triangle section, and uh, there's a second graphic. Next slide, please. Uh, council might recall when WashDOT did a draft of what they might do if they did the project that they currently have on the books, uh, the dotted lines, you can see that the green line shows the uh, realignment of 116th that WashDOT is anticipating if they redid the 70th Street interchange access line ramp. So, I'm sorry, can you go back for just one second? So one of the things that you can also see on this is uh, we evaluated the two options for the Aquatic and Recreation Center, both the 103,000 square foot option and the 86,000 square foot option, and both of those options fit on the property that is not encumbered by the easement. And so you can see that from this graphic here. The proposal that is on the ballot fully fits on the site that's owned by the city with this purchase, and then the site in the, the north that would be part of the easement is uh, intended to be surface parking anyway. And so WashDOT has agreed that that's a use that they will allow on the easement. So the property will fully allow the use of the Aquatic and Recreation Community Center um, should the ballot measure pass. Next slide, please. So 
Just a little bit of background on the purchase itself. Um, as you recall, we showed the council letter of intent for the purchase between the city and WashDOT on <clears throat> the council meeting on July 5th, 2023. Uh, we received a quit claim deed from WashDOT uh, early December in between the last council meeting and this one. If the city were to simply accept that quit claim deed as is, we would own the property. So WashDOT has said, we are ready to sell it to you. Um, the purchase price is at $9 million, uh, but subject to the easement. So I'll come back to the funding sources in just a second. Um, what the resolution does is it authorizes the city manager to sign and execute the quit claim deed if we can get a few changes. So there's a couple things that we want to do here. As you can see, number one, we want to confirm the legal description and the precise easement area just to make sure it is where they think it is and where we think it is. Um, one of the other issues we have is we are not requesting a lowering of the price even with the easement. Um, the reason for that is trying to evaluate that would be extremely complicated and probably <clears throat> lead to significant delay. Uh, but what we want to have clear in the quit claim deed is that should WashDOT ever determine or the state ever determine not to use that property for the uh, anticipated use they have, it would revert fully back to the city at no additional price. So. The policy staff we've worked with have said that is their intent. Um, that's not quite captured in the quick claim deed, and so we want to work with them over the next couple weeks to make sure that that's included in the final document. Um, and then finally, there is a section of the quick claim deed, and the city attorney can speak to this if you have questions. It's about um, waiver of liability if there's some uh, highway drainage or runoff from the section that has the easement, and we're just essentially exploring that further to understand exactly what that liability is and whether that's a standard approach for WashDOT in these kinds of transactions. Um, we do anticipate that we'll be able to resolve all these issues uh, sometime soon and that we'll be able to execute an amended quick claim deed. Uh, so what the resolution does, it authorizes me to sign if these elements can be addressed. Uh, next slide, please. So, <clears throat> what we're looking for, first, if the council has any questions, we're prepared to answer those. And then we're looking for the council to approve resolution 5606. Uh, this would authorize me to execute the quick claim deed. Um, however, if I was not able to satisfactorily reach those, resolve those issues, we'd bring it back to the council to see whether the council wanted to approve it, the quick claim deed as is. So, um, so I'll start with resolution 5606 is the resolution uh, before you, and then there's a fiscal note, which I'll talk about in a second after the resolution is addressed. I don't know if city attorney, if there's anything you wanted to add. So any questions? Council, Council can I get a Council Member Nixon? Yeah, just a, a question. My recollection was that we originally talked about structured parking, and it sounds like now we're saying only surface parking. Is that correct? Yeah, so the, the structured parking with, there was a graphic that showed a level of a ramp up structured parking. Right. Um, in our conversations with WashDOT, that actually would have been allowed uh, as long as we removed it if they needed to do it, or we could also sort of align the parking differently. But in the 86,000 square foot park and ride, that structure is not needed. The surface parking is sufficient just on the surface with okay. this, the large site. Thank you. Can I get a motion? If you do, I will. Madam Mayor, I move resolution R5606. Second. Moved by Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Council Member Black. Discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimous. City Manager. 
So I want to go back to, into the <clears throat> fiscal note. So uh, Dan, I don't know if you could go back a couple of slides. It has, there you go, thank you, perfect. <clears throat> so include, whoops, the one that has, there you go, right there, perfect. Um, <clears throat> so there is an attached fiscal note that uh, lays out this. Um, when we originally set aside the money to purchase the park and ride, we did it with one-time excess money available in the general fund. We also have a significant amount of park impact fee money, which is uh, designed and eligible for park acquisition. Um, impact fees, as you might all know, have an expiration date, and so some of the impact fees we've accumulated are getting closer to their 10-year expiration date. So the proposal from staff is to use as much of that as we can to replace the general fund dollars with the park impact fee dollars. That then just reserves those general fund dollars, which are much more flexible for any use the council may want to have in the future, and it also um, appropriately uses the park impact fee dollars. Um, there's a couple other small swaps um, that are included in the fiscal note. Happy to answer questions if you have any questions about this, but um, should the council approve the fiscal note by motion, we would then adjust this in the uh, CIP that we bring forward to the council in the mid-by budget process. See if you have any questions on the fiscal note. Uh, this purchase is currently intended for the Aquatic Center. Okay. You mentioned the process if um, Proposition 1 is not approved by the voters. If we wanted to, in that contingency, if we wanted to do housing, does Parks funding allow us to do housing on the site? So it would. It would depend on how we decided to structure the, the deal. So, for example, you could buy back the park impact fees with the general fund if we decided to reverse ourselves and do something different. Um, you could also, for example, envision where you had a park structure and then housing on top of the park structure. Or if you look at the purchase price um, using the impact fees, it would be about half of the purchase price of the facility. So you could also look at this is a park piece over here and this is a non-park use over here. So we have quite a bit of flexibility with the way we do this, but all options would still be on the table to bring it back and do something else. Thank you. For the discussion, can I get a motion? Madam Mayor, I move that council approve the fiscal note. Second. Moved by Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Council Member Black to accept the fiscal note. Discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thank you very much. Thank you. That takes us to <clears throat> item B, Kirkland Zoning Code Amendments. Yes. City Manager. <clears throat> so thank you, Madam Mayor. So we are actually proposing to the council defer action on this at this time. <clears throat> Just brief background. Uh, the impetus behind this interim ordinance was uh, Camp United We Stand, uh, which is across the street, um, was to be out of their location in early November. Uh, they had notified us a couple weeks ago that they weren't going to be able to make that time frame and wouldn't be able to get out till sometime in December. So the purpose of this was to allow um, an interim ordinance that would allow the uh, planning and building director to give them an extension <clears throat> for that period of time. Um, since that time, the great news is we've learned they actually have been coordinating with St. Dunstan's Church in Shoreline, which is where they intended to go, and they're now back on their original schedule. So they will be able to leave at a time that complies with our permit process, and so this interim ordinance is not necessary at this time. So. Our recommendation is to not take any action on this ordinance tonight. Um, the overall issue of taking a look at the ordinance that deals with um, uh, encampments um, and tent cities is something that we would normally bring up during the comp plan process and the miscellaneous zoning codes in the first quarter of next year. So if the council is interested in still talking about this issue, our recommendation would be 
we bring that back to you in the first quarter of next year for discussion. Uh, Councilmember Nixon. Thank you. I, I just completely support that idea of having a sort of a comprehensive review of our encampment uh, code. It's been 17 years since it was adopted. The political environment around encampments was quite different 17 years ago. And um, uh, some people in the community have identified issues with uh, inconsistencies with state law and uh, other complications that result from the way that the code is currently written. So I completely support the idea of uh, undertaking that review uh, sometime within the next year, hopefully to uh. have it adopted it with the uh, zoning code amendments at the end of next year. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, Council Member Nixon, uh, Council Member Pascoe, the mayor and myself served dinner to Camp United We Stand, and that's where one of the reasons came to council's attention that they may be facing this deadline, and we brought it back to the city manager. We really appreciate the work to see how we could help support them, but it's great to hear that that support wasn't wasn't going to be needed. So for uh, all the work that we're not going to be dealing with tonight, <laughs> we'll deal with it in the future, but we appreciate the response of the Thank, Thank you for that. Okay, this takes us to item number C, the purchasing code amendments discussion. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, so this topic, as you know from the, the memo, is anticipated for discussion. We had discussion, possible action, but with the uh, questions and comments I received in the call, we were not intending this for action tonight, and I think Council does have some really good questions and comments. So uh, we want to present to you the ordinance tonight and get your feedback, and we're anticipating that there'll probably be some amendments that you'd like to see us bring back to uh, the next meeting in November. So um, with that context, our presenter is going to be our Director of Finance and Administration, Michael Olson. Welcome, Michael. Uh, <clears throat> good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council Members, and thank you, Andrew, for your help. I always appreciate IT stepping in and taking care of things that are um, always looking different when I step up here than when I practiced earlier. So um, this, I have a very short presentation on the update to the purchasing code, just six slides, and um, a chance to have council members ask questions and get clarification and give us direction. And I also have our senior assistant city attorney, Darcy, here to answer all the very important legal questions. So I appreciate this has been truly a team effort to get this updated. Uh, the purchasing uh, code was originally codified in 2007, and the ordinance before you includes changes to definitions, improved organization, and language clarification. The purpose of the revision and updates are to uh, help streamline procurement, ensuring safeguards for competitive pricing, providing opportunities and more um, different avenues of purchasing that would help benefit promoting diversity and equity in our procurement, and also guaranteeing the highest quality for our services, engineering, architecture, and consulting. The highlights, I know there's quite a few there, I'll just touch them briefly of, of the proposed updates, is increasing thresholds 
for various types of competitive procurement, um, authorizing the city to engage in alternative delivery methods for public works projects with council approval. That was discussed briefly in the study session this evening. Authorizing performance-based contracts through the Washington State Program, increasing the competitive purchasing thresholds to uh, reflect the inflation over time, but also to reference state um, thresholds um, where the city manager or council approval is required. Also changing the requirement for city council to award all public work con construction contracts over 50,000, have council still um, award those projects where the recommended award is over the council authorized budget for the project. This uh, uh, ordinance also creates a separate code provisions for addressing invitation, invitation for bids procurement of public works construction contracts. There's a couple authorizations for the finance director to approve interlocal purchasing agreements and authorizing the city uh, finance director to approve exemptions to procurement requirements for uh, replacement parts, repairs, and renewal of software services, pretty routine purchases. The um, changes would still require direct um, award by council for the following. Um, and those are uh, construction contracts for public works projects not included in the capital improvement plan or whose costs along with the contingency exceed the budgeted amount. Contracts uh, for following an invitation for bid that involve the purchase of goods, services, or vehicles or equipment that were not previously budgeted. And also council um, award would be required for contracts Republic works through alternative delivery um, contracting methods as discussed in the uh, study session this evening. This table here uh, puts a list of the current um, threshold for uh, where quotes are required and approval for, infra, infra, uh, for bids and RFQs and RFPs and shows the $23 inflated by the um, CPI June to June that we use for all of our other contracts um, from 2007 to 2023, and then the proposed change for the thresholds. And so most of the, the, the first two don't have any state law limitation. It is up to the council to decide where that limit may be, and the last uh, three are consistent with the state law. So the next step is uh, receiving input and uh, direction from City Council, and the plan is to bring this back to November 8th with any corrections and updates. Thank you. Discussion? Uh, Council Mayor Pastor. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I have, I have uh, some kind of extensive comments um, that I'd like to share. and. I guess I want to first preface this by saying I love our public works team and I love our finance team, so don't take this the negatively. Um, you know, one of the, the things is is that uh, I, I definitely support increasing the limits to keep up with inflation. I think that's a, a common sense uh, modification. Um, but, you know, this kind of having this code in front of me, I had never read it before. And it was the first time kind of reading through it, and so it kind of raised some additional questions, um, some that are related to the, to the proposal to, tonight and some that aren't. Uh, one of them was, and, and so my questions are more just, I'd like, to, I'd like us to kind of think about this a little bit more. 
The first item is on the design build procurement options. Um, I provided comments earlier just about some things to think about uh, related to the types of firms and the types of designers we'd be attracting. Um, would we still be encouraging small businesses and local businesses to, to bid on these? Um, how would we continue to attract you know, diversity in, in terms of um, folks working for the city on professional services or contracting? And what is the kind of the full life cycle costs of that, recognizing that those contracts do result in litigation more often than, than others? Um, so that's, I'd like us to just explore that a little bit more in terms of the types of projects that we would use that for and really weigh those pros and cons um, a little bit more. The second, the second item is around the visibility on our professional services contracts. And I always start, try to start with a, a problem statement of why, why do I care? Uh, one is that our capital improvement costs continue to increase at a significant rate. And there's some very good, good um, logical reasons for that, um, you know, such as inflation and material costs and supply chain issues and et cetera. Um, but these can significantly impact our taxpayers and shift money away from other important projects. And one of those areas that we have seen higher costs in is what I categorize as soft costs. And soft costs are usually things like design, engineering, permitting, the kind of the upfront costs of a project evolution, right? If the project evolution life cycle is you kind of come up with an idea, you budget for it, you find funding, then you go into design and engineering, permitting right away, and then eventual construction, and then project closeout. And it's a, that upfront of the, of the project that um, it'd, be, it'd be nice to kind of have more uh, visibility in. Uh, our current process today is that reading through the code, staff invites uh, firms to propose on a capital project. Um, and then they interview, go through the selection process, and then, and then essentially select and hire, and then go through the contracting stage. And then the contract, and it doesn't matter what size the contract is, it could be a, a $10 million contract um, that we have authorized the city manager and or designate to, to sign that contract. Um, as long as it's you know obviously within the CIP budget. I'm, I'm interested in exploring kind of how we can provide more transparency into that early scoping process of capital projects, either through you know, a review of professional services contracts over a certain size limit, you know, and I, I'm open to whatever that might be, um, and, and, what I'm, what I, and what, how this works for other cities, and this actually for every city on the east side, I haven't found one city yet that doesn't do this, is that that information comes on the consent calendar. Well, I, I have found one city, and that's Kirkland. Um, and, and so why is this important? The, co the code uh, states that the council is only notified if the CIP budget is exceeded. Well, the CIP budget includes design costs right away and construction costs. So of course, you're never going to exceed a capital budget at the beginning with, with design, a design fee. Um, that's just not going to work. Um, so, but what happens if we get a really high design fee because the scope of the project is undefined or we uncover different um, cost escalation or risk factors? 
that, that, that information, we don't actually see that until the very end of the project when it actually is over budget and it's going out to bid. And basically, there's no opportunity to even have a discussion about how you change things. It's either does the project go forward or, or does it not? Um, and that's as a, as a council member, and, and I know I've gotten this complaint from, from the community, that's, that's very frustrating to, to have, to be that late in the process to kind of fully understand that, okay, you know, we have some, some, some issues. So how could we provide more transparency earlier in the process and, um, is what I'm looking for. Learn about, but that would also provide other benefits. Uh, what projects are we working on? Who are we hiring? How much are we paying uh, different firms? What, what scope are they completing? What's their schedule? All of that information is available, but it's available through a public disclosure request. Um, for other cities, that's, uh, you, you can go and you can look it up um, um, just on the web. John, can I interrupt you for just a second to see if Darcy has something to add? Oh, thank you, Mayor. Can I finish? Oh. Sorry, no. Yeah, you can yeah. finish. I was just going to respond about the budget piece just to clarify what that related to. Okay. Just because that's only for the construction contract. The proposed amendment to just reference budget is only for the public works construction aspect of it. So all the design would be under the other requirements for engineering and architectural services. Those fall under sort of that other category of we didn't we didn't propose changes in those areas, but the budget piece of that wouldn't tie into the design services aspects. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I think w what I was trying to convey at the beginning was that um, some of what I'm talking about isn't based upon the proposed changes. It's based upon some of the existing language um, in the code today. Um, so, anyways, I I'd. With all of that, my ask is really just to ask staff to um, identify options on how more transparency could be provided in the beginning stages of the of the project evolution, so that um, public that asks so they can understand what is it that we're doing, um, who's doing it, how much is it costing, because a lot of that you're going to know pretty early on in a project evolution whether or not that you're going to have a, a high risk of exceeding that construction uh, budget later on. So that's what I'm asking is what, what types of ways can we do that to provide a little bit more transparency? Other cities do it through the professional services contracts that go before the consent calendar. I'm open to whatever ideas are out there. That doesn't mean that Kirkland has to do it that way. I just would like to see um, more transparency. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Pascal. I know that our public works director is listening, and um, that we will look into this and look what other cities do and provide back, provide, bring back some um, discussion on that and options. Thank you, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you, Michael, for this um, this presentation. My comments are a little bit briefer than my colleagues, and then I have um, uh, one comment on the proposed update highlight number five. Um, eliminating the requirement for City Council to award all public works construction contracts over 50000 but still requiring City Council award for those projects where the recommended award is over the Council authorized budget for the project. So my interpretation of this is that it, as long as it's not over budget, it's not going to come before Council. And I can imagine, I, I do think we should look at this. 
Um, but I can imagine projects where the construction award is so large that both the public and council may want to weigh in on it and have um, and have that visibility, as Councilman Pascal mentioned. And so I would propose that we look at increasing that threshold, perhaps significantly, but not just eliminating it altogether. I don't know what that would look like. I would look to staff for recommendations if that's like half a million dollars, 200,000. I'm not exactly sure what that threshold necessarily would be, but I think of like the Totem Lake Connector Bridge, for example. It's a very large construction project that I cannot imagine that something like that not coming before council before being awarded. And so um, I would just like us to, to relook at that number five. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor, um, and thanks for the comments from my other, my, from my colleagues. Um, I have three areas of clarification. I just want to um, uh, quickly go through, um, and probably the the first and most material one has to do with um, the uh, the role of of direct department directors managers and supervisors within the departments, uh, their authorization to make um, uh, to uh, certain approvals, certain purchase you know, procurements at certain levels. And I had a conversation with staff about this a little bit earlier today, and Michael, you probably are aware of that, but, um, and I, uh, just for my colleagues' uh, benefit, I came to really understand the the goals of those amendments that are being proposed, uh, the inclusion, and I guess I would I would um, direct my colleagues' attention to um, to language um, on uh, line 102 of the ordinance on uh, e page 96, which for the first time we're adding managers and supervisors. Um, so generally, this or you know this. Um, uh, this code uh, deals with approvals by city manager, approvals by you as director of finance, and then certain delegation of approvals to department directors. Um, this is sort of the first time, um, like Councilmember Pascal, it's the first time I've really read this section, but it's the first time we're seeing managers and supervisors added. I asked about that. My understanding is it's because um, that is consistent with the original 2007 adoption of this code. Um, it was never codified, but it is codified in our procurement manual. manual. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to align this code to our procurement manual, which we are operating under today, which does allow certain very certain small purchases by managers, supervisors. What I would ask there is for us to, instead of just blanket adding managers and supervisors in there, since our procurement manual does have uh, tiers. So for example, supervisor, I think, can only approve $1,000. I would like to see that reflected in our code so that the council today is, or well, the council next month is not approving sort of blanket approval for managers and supervisors. So for our goal is to align the procurement manual with this code. Let's take a few extra steps, it would be my suggestion, uh, to make sure we're sort of building that tiered system in. Because um, obviously uh, these internal controls and the, you know, financial Control that are the council that the you know that uh, the residents expect of the taxpayer or of the council is obviously one of our most important you know roles. So we really want to be really careful what we're doing with this code, yes. and I want to be really careful with that manager and supervisor. It's an, I think it's an important element of internal controls. So that's number one. Any response to that? And you don't have to have a response to that. Um, and it's, it's good to be clear in, yeah. in communication. I will say, I mean, I, I arrived at Kirkland at, at the end of 2003, and these numbers were the same when I arrived um, almost 20 years ago. 
but it is good to clarify what level of responsibility. And I would also say that I believe every director understands that even though they've delegated authority to their managers and supervisors, they're still responsible for the budget of their department to do the best purchasing. Yeah. Following all the rules. Okay. We have also had some staff sort of ask for us to review those thresholds, the $1,000 and the $7,500 mm -hmm. for managers. So maybe in bringing back proposed changes, they might be a little higher than the current procurement manual. Not that we would definitely move them, but that yeah. get that authorization to potentially increase them because yeah. with inflation, those those dollars have gone up. And I think, as yeah. Michael indicated, they've been the same since 2003 or yeah. at least. So. And I can't speak for my colleagues, but some of us have already said that, you know, we think obviously inflation-based increases in these numbers make a ton of sense. Uh, for, so if that's, if, um, if clarification of this uh, this authority by managers and supervisors is coupled with some some inflationary increases, and we're we're obviously we're going to conform that within the procurement manual as well, uh, I'd be I personally would be open to that. Um, so I'll move on to the second point. Um, in the when I was reading the memo, I think it was on uh, each page seventy one. I originally read it um, as uh, stating that um, vehicles and other equipment could be purchased without uh, a contract for the purchase of vehicles and equipment could be purchased without approval of the council. That was sort of a broad sentence that was included in the memo. Um, after conversations with staff and after diving deeper into the code, I think I understand better what's involved in that. What I'm thinking in that context is just uh, vehicles and some of our equipment is some of the most expensive um, items. It's obviously not as large as some um, capital improvement projects and think public works projects. It is some of the largest single line items that we see come through, uh, including some very expensive fire trucks and things like that. So I just want to be—I wanted to be conscious of that when I saw that there was going to be sort of a, a perhaps an absence of oversight. But now my understanding—this is a question uh, for you, Michael. My understanding is when it comes to vehicles and equipment, that is still going to be subject to the invitation for bid process, and that it's only really with respect to repair services on vehicles and equipment that there's going to be this wave, potential for waiver of the bid process. Is that fair? That is fair. There's, there's invitation for bid and there's also state contract. So depending on what is the cheapest for the most efficient for the city to get. But yeah, when, often when repairs happen on vehicles, especially fire engines and large ones, you can open up the engine and suddenly you find more that, and, it, and without knowing beforehand, you're above your threshold. Yep. and need approval to, to keep moving to repair the vehicle. Yeah, and I totally, this, that totally makes sense from a um, service and maintenance standpoint. I just wanted to make sure that we weren't necessarily, again, the memo and the, and the code might have been a little bit out of alignment. Right. Um, and that's, but, uh, so thank you for that clarification. One last clarification and, and a request, and this is on uh, the purchase of professional services for legal services. I know that we've added an exception um, in the new uh, code, let me make sure I got this right. Um, I, get, I think it's 3.85.160. Yes. Um, we've added a new exception for purchase of legal services. Again, I explored that topic with the staff. I understand legal services are so unique with respect to confidentiality, with respect to a complete unknown as to how much they might um, cost. And, um, but when I was talking to staff, one of the suggestions was that, um, as me and my colleagues know, that we bid out a criminal prosecution uh, contract, and we also bid out um, public defense contract. Uh, and it was suggested that those would be items 
that would not necessarily fall into this exception. So we would have an exception for the purchase of legal professional services, but it would that we'd be have an exception to the exception for awarding the contracts. Um, uh, I think it's on a whatever an annual, biannual, three five year basis, whatever it is. <clears throat> These are obviously major contracts um, that those would still be subject to um, the the bid bid procedures that are set forth in the code. I, I will let the city attorney's office respond to that question. Well, for prosecution services, uh, I'm much more familiar with that than the public defender services because for conflict purposes, we've separated prosecution services, which I administer from public defender services, which the city manager's office administers. Uh, we do have um, a competitive process for the award of both those contracts. It's uh, an RFP process, and we um, convene groups of affected clients uh, and typically outsiders with expertise to review and evaluate proposals. We identify the highest rated proposal. We undertake negotiations with that firm and if they're successful, we enter into a contract with them. And if not, we go to the next highest rated proposer or we terminate the process and start over. So we do have a competitive process, but it's way, it's, it's more, it's an RFP and not an invitation to bid because it's based on way more than price. It's based on experience and references and um, resumes and uh, <coughs> philosophy. I mean, for, for example, when we awarded the prosecution services contract uh, last year, we added a category of uh, criteria for DEIB to make sure that, they're, that the interested firm's values were aligned with those of the cities. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's, well, we do have a competitive process for those. Are, we can definitely add in the provision to say that those still would require the same RFP procedures we do now, and then just give the exception for other types of legal services. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Great. Because the current exception is written so broadly, it's basically yeah. any legal services. Certainly, and that wasn't the intent to necessarily capture those two. We would have still done those competitively, so we can certainly add those in. Uh, not to belabor your vehicle and equipment point, but I would like to further clarify. Yeah. I, I do think that the exception that wouldn't require any competitive process in terms of depending on the amount going out and finding those replacement parts since we know they only come and sort of take away that memo that needs to be done when that's the only one we can buy. That and, and the vehicle where we take the repairs, that is the exception that's built into 210 I think is the number. But in terms of new vehicles and new equipment, under an invitation for bid, we did write the, the proposed ordinance does include that. If that was included as an item in council budget, we wouldn't come back to council with that award if it was within the budget authorized. Right. Now, to, to be fair, not many of those even come to you now because most of them are purchased from a, 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 a piggybacking contract, an, an interlocal uh, contract, usually from the state um, for for the big purchases, we go through another organization for those because we end up getting discounted rates from what we would have if we did an invitation for bids. So um, we you wouldn't you don't see those anyway very often. But um, we thought we'd we had sort of staff ask for the same treatment as we were asking for public works pro <laughs> pro yeah. projects. So that's why I ended up in there, and that was my apologies for the confusing nope. memo on that. So no, hopefully that clarification is helpful. It is helpful because um, although. 
we're not going to see, we're not going to have, uh, we're not going to be approving the ward because it's already been approved as part of the biennial budget. I now know that it's going to go through the IF, IFB process um, and then it'll be awarded based on that bid, that bid process, correct? Either the bid, uh, either the IFB process or finding them on the, per, on one of the competitive bids where they essentially did a competitive process earlier, just not Kirkland doing it. Yep. All right. Great. great. Thank you. I, I will also add that any vehicle that's replaced in the next two-year budget is in the CIP um, item by item, and any new equipment that is brand new or any vehicle that is new is in the service packages. So they're all individually listed in the budget. Great. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. <clears throat> well, I appreciate staff looking at this and updating the um, thresholds that have existed for 20 years and also taking a look at what are things that really are policy issues that we as a council should be looking at versus uh, implementation issues given what we've already set forward in, in the budget. Uh, my comments are on the public works projects, uh, item, item five that Councilmember Falcone had talked about. The things where the council has really been involved in that I would like to preserve has been in the cases where bids have come in with a particular base bid and some schedule options. And there's been a number of times where councils provided some feedback on those schedule options where we've either directed staff to come back uh, and find options to fund one of the schedule options or we've changed priorities. And I don't know what's the right way to go describe this. Um, perhaps Councilmember Falcone's discussion might be captured if this hits a certain uh, money level or threshold level. But what I would don't want to have happen is say, because the base contract was fulfilled in the budget and we miss on some opportunities with some schedules that we might want to weigh in on as a council from a policy standpoint. The, uh, the other thing that would be interesting and um, helpful on this, I would expect that Kirkland is probably leading edge in saying how can we streamline our processes, but would like to understand um, if there are both opportunities and when, when we're diverging from what our um, neighboring cities are doing in how council gets involved in this process. Thank you. Thank you. We will be taking a closer look at our neighborhood cities and bringing that back as well. Well, Michael, <clears throat> that was a lot. <laughs> um, it, it was a great team that prepared this, so thank you. And it was a great team that responded to it. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for your work on this. And um, looks like you've got some work to do before we see you again. <clears throat> thank you. Okay, that takes us to item D, proposed draft uh, 2024 state oh, legislative you. agenda. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So, uh, yeah, this is your first check-in as a full council on the proposed draft legislative agenda. We are looking for feedback, both the staff and the legislative work group. Uh, here to walk you through it is our Government Affairs Manager, Diana Hart. Thank you. Good evening, Council. Um, so tonight I have a hopefully fairly brief presentation for you to discuss the draft agenda. Um, we'll kick things off with a conversation on, um, with a quick overview of the legislative agenda development process. Um, to start, our conversation starts with a debriefing of the 2023 legislative session before the legislative work group takes their summer break. 
And then over the summer, staff begin collecting ideas from our subject matter experts and council for either items to carry forward from past sessions or new ideas to consider this year. Legislative work group reviews the proposals, does some initial opportunity and challenge assessments, and develops the draft priorities that you see tonight. The conversations you will have tonight will inform the legislative work group and modifications needed to reflect the priorities of council. The, um, these modifications and any further identification of opportunities and challenges will be turned into the final agenda for council's consideration. And once approved, we'll share the agenda with our delegation and subject matter experts to inform our, inform our work during session. The legislative agenda is made up of three components, which collectively serve three primary purposes. The agenda signals the city's values to the community, indicates the city's policy positions to our delegation and other legislators, and serves as a guiding document for the legislative work group's actions during session. We'll start our review of the draft agenda with the general principles. This section saw a bit of a refresh this year, refocusing and reframing the principles to be focused on indicating the city's support for legislation that advances the items that the city has already committed to doing for your previously adopted goals, plans, and policies. Some of the bullets of past sessions were consolidated or relocated and references to specific plans like the city's work program, council goals, budget, comp plan, SMP, DIB roadmap, and housing strategy plan were added. Each of these plans have many initiatives that may be advanced or impaired by state legislation. Inclusion in the general principles indicates the legislative work group's ability to share support or concerns with any proposed legislation. If there was interest by the legislative work group in doing more active championing of a piece of legislation, the work group would return to the full council for approval prior to action. Uh, next, we'll dive into the key policy priorities that the legislative work group will be working on this session, also known as the legislative priorities. And this is our draft for your consideration. The legislative priorities are the specific pieces of legislation that the city, if the agenda is adopted by council, will take a leadership role in advocating for this legislative session. The first item is predominantly carried over from last session, supporting legislation to provide funding and policy tools to increase access to housing and expands construction and preservation of moderate and low income housing supply. There's further detail of two more narrow policies, transit oriented development or TOD, as this unfinished legislation is anticipated to return this session. Um, but we've added specific support for allowances of the community benefits that council identified in the 85th station area plan. And the second is the new REIT increment dedicated to affordable housing that the city had on their legislative agenda this past session. Next, we have a new policy item related to judicial flexibility to reduce speeding ticket fines that was identified earlier this year. The legislative work group is continuing to evaluate and assess this new proposal and will likely identify further refinement of this concept prior to council's consideration of the final agenda in the future. The final new policy item is support for lifting the 1% property tax cap to improve the city's ability to sustainably provide municipal services. Next, um, we have um, a new policy, or next we had for our budget requests, starting off with our two capital budget requests. First is updated facilities at Everest Park as identified in the city CIP. This request is designed to offset the larger than anticipated costs identified during design for the restroom and storage facility improvements at Everest Park. 
Depending on the finalized scope and the capacity of interest by our legislators in this project, we may also include some of the other identified projects at this facility, such as ADA access improvements. Second is safety and access improvements at OO Denny Park. We're continuing to refine the scope and specific improvement list to maximize the opportunity of this request with our delegation. The next in our budget requests are related to the state's transportation budget. First is a reprogramming request to adjust funding from the 2025 to 2027 and 2027 to 2029 transportation biannual budgets for the WASDOT grant to support the city's CKC hot crossing and 132nd intersection improvements to the 2023 to 2025 biannual budget, which would align with the capital budget funding we secured last session. Second is supporting the regional effort to address the forecasted WASDOT and sound transit funding shortfalls that without funding by the legislature could result in significant delays in program delivery. These items will see further detail regarding the scope and cost requests as part of the final agenda proposal that council will consider later this year. Finally, we'll review the policy champions that will be monitoring during session. The policy champion ally list is replacement of the city's past support agenda. This list will be utilized in substantially similar ways, but is reframing from a list of agendas the city supports to a list of organizations that the city monitors for policies that may align with our priorities and would therefore support. Similar to the general principles that the legislative work group believes there is value in doing more than just simple support, the legislative work group will return to council for approval prior to further action. This list is currently made up of the same groups that were on the support agenda last session and fall into the following buckets. We have the Association of Washington Cities, Transportation, Housing, Human Services, Environmental, uh, Public Safety, Parks, Open Government and Transparency, other local government jurisdictions, and other allies and issues. So that completes our draft legislative agenda review, um, which takes us to next steps. The legislative work group will incorporate any feedback shared tonight into the final draft agenda for council consideration at a future meeting, um, at which time council will have an opportunity to approve the legislative agenda through a resolution. The legislative work group will then meet with our delegation as they do each year on our legislative coffees to discuss um, the, our legislative agenda and any opportunity we have this upcoming session. And before you know it, we'll be starting the 60-day short legislative session in January. I do want to flag two AWC-related issues before I turn things back to you. The first is that AWC's action days is really early this year. It's January 24th, 25th. We'll do more engagement with council, but just wanted to make sure that was on your radar. The second is that AWC has issued a call for applications to be appointed to a good handful of statewide boards and commissions, including both state agency and AWC tables. The deadline to apply is November 6th. And with that, I will turn things back to you. Thanks, Diana. Okay, uh, should we hear from Chair? Thank you, Diana, and I'm, we're looking forward to seeing everyone's feedback. I just want to flag the one of the big change that you're going to see on this that you have recognized is that we are moving forward. We are using our adopted plans as a framework. And what we noticed last session is we had a very loose bullet on sustainability actions, which pretty much covered every bill that went through the session and this lets us target bills that are specific to our legislative actions. I'll be honest with you, I just sat here and went, we have no transportation plans on this, this list, so um, we need to add those. Um, and then Diana, did you want to set 
And oh, what I also was going to say, under the, you know, the general things we've talked about over since the last session are leaf blowers, affordable housing, the TOD bill, sustainability measures, green building, electrification. And then three of us went to uh, K4C last week, and there was a lot of conversation about the Climate Commitment Act dollars and what will be available. So again, those items will fit into these general plans so that we can address them through the session. The only thing I was going to also ask, Diana, is do you want to kind of set the stage? You know, you did say it was going to be a short, short session. What usually happens in a short session? So, the sh Short sessions are short. They're, they're quick. They're, you get in, you get out, and there's, it's, it's a pretty intense 60 days. Um, the legislature will be really focused on their budgets and making any adjustments they need to their budgets and any sort of hanging fruit that they felt were kind of missed opportunities last session. One of the big policies we're hearing about as one of those kind of hanging fruit is the transit-oriented development bill. So we do anticipate that to be one of the bigger items that takes up a lot of kind of air that the legislature has. Um, we'll stay tuned to see if there's more kind of big ticket things that come forward, but a lot of the efforts can be focused around updating the budgets, um, sort of as you do each year for kind of rectifying that final budget year um, going into the new biennium. Awesome, thank you. So I look forward to your feedback. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I just want to say I appreciate the hard work that's gone into this. Um, I, and I, I really appreciate that it's very focused on pragmatic uh, items that are achievable in a short session. Um, uh, nothing here is terribly complex. It's things that have been percolating anyway, so that's great. And I also appreciate that it avoids hot button issues that could be divisive in the community. Um, I also appreciate the changing of the support agenda to the ally list, just so that we don't give the impression that we automatically support every proposal that comes out of these organizations. Um, a couple of substantive points. Um, I think that even though it's, it, it's labeled as Denny Park, I think that's mostly transportation related. Uh, it's on the roadway through the park as opposed to being in the park itself. Um, I'm not sure whether that, which committee that would go through even, but uh, it's something worth looking at. Um, and then uh, you may recall we received a request earlier today um, uh, that in addition to those capital budget assets that are already there, uh, that we uh, consider asking for funding for improvements for the baseball fields at uh, Juanita Beach Park. And uh, I personally have sympathy for that request. Uh, both of my sons played baseball in those fields. They needed attention 20 years ago, <laughs> and they still need attention now. So um, I don't know if that's something that could still be looked at uh, before this is brought back to us for final approval, but. Um, you know, at, le at least opportunistically, if, if something comes up where a <coughs> legislator asks us, well, we could do this too, have it on the list of a, you know, a, a hip pocket proposal. So thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Falcon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, I will um, echo what Councilmember Nixon uh, said about the ally list. I remember this is something I brought up when I was a brand spanking new, like, first or second meeting council member. Like, 
the support agenda didn't really make sense and the terminology didn't make sense and we've kind of struggled with what to call it. So Dana, I don't know who came up with the term ally list, but I'm gonna give you credit for that brilliance. So thank you for that because we finally, I think, solved or uh, at least made progress on how to better term what we're really doing with that list um, of other organizations' legislative agenda. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Um, Few other things um, to pile on to what Council Member Nixon mentioned about the Juanita Beach Park. I actually, well, I really appreciate the letter that we got today um, and in conversations with folks. Um, on your slide, you mentioned that it's the Junior Little League World Series, but I just want to um, specify that it's the Softball Junior Little League World Series. That's something that's pretty awesome that we have a girls sport um, championship event here in our city. Um, and I know that, um, you know, I've certainly been in conversations with um, the organizers of that event and they've um, been talking about desires for not only improvements at Everest Park, but perhaps even more so at, at Juanita Beach Park for practice fields. And so I think tying it into um, the Little League Junior Softball World Series is brilliant. And I would argue that the need's even greater at the Juanita Beach Park. So I um, would hope that we would prioritize that even above the Everest Park, but certainly in addition to um, as we have these conversations, and there's a list in the email of things like irrigation, which might be a bigger ask, because my understanding is that has to go under the road. I don't really know all the details or how much that would cost, um, but there's things such as um, fencing and other safety issues that I know um, that Kirkland National League has been advocating for for quite some time, just to bring it up to not even close to the standards of where Everest is today. So just applying an equity lens, I think that that's something that should take priority and that we should, we should certainly be looking at. Um, I really appreciated your point on there about the AWC Board and Commission appointments that are um, coming up, and I just wonder if we can, if staff can look at that strategically. I know we've had conversations about like where do we want council to apply, not solely based on our interest, but also um, what's best for our representing our community and, and um, for the city of Kirkland. And so um, I, I look to you for guidance on that as well, if there are things that you would like us to consider applying for. Um, I know Councilman Nixon mentioned there's not a lot of controversy in these, but I uh, have heard a lot of controversy over the TOD bill, or potential TOD bills, right? And so uh, my understanding is there's a lot of different versions, a lot of nuances, and a lot of conversations that are having, um, that have happened already. I know our lobbyists have been in conversations. I know there's a tour schedule for Friday. And I feel like as a council member, I'm not prepared to give input on even the details that were on your slide tonight. There's a lot of details, and I know that's some of the details that's yet to be worked out. Um, and so I would really appreciate being briefed on um, a much greater level of detail about all the conversations that are happening on the different versions of TUD bills, what some of those sticking points are, so that we can give input as a council, because I assume we're gonna need to give input at some point on what versions or what details we prefer and what we think is best. And um, that's not a conversation we've had as a council yet. And so I don't know if that means, you know, perhaps having like we do small groups of two or three council members at a time um, to be briefed on that. I assume that the legislative working group has already been briefed on it. So perhaps it's just the, the remaining four um, that need, need to have those meetings to really get up to speed on the TOD bill, but, TOD bill, but just because there's so much disagreement. There's so much nuance. Um, I don't think we're prepared to have that conversation as a council until we get that level of, of briefing. Thank you. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, let's see. I, uh, we'll start with the TOD bill just because Councilmember Falcone 
comments made me think about this. I think the most important thing on the TOD bill is preserving the incentive structure that we have within the 85th Street station area plan. I think that's what the language here is referring to, um, and, and want to make sure that we have done that. We've already put a lot of thought into saying, here's the public benefits that we're asking for for the uh, additional height that we're, we're getting. Uh, as far as the real estate excise tax increment, um, one of the things I'll be asking as you report on bills is whether uh, the bills involve a tiered or progressive real estate excise tax. Um, and just, I, I wouldn't put that as necessarily a requirement. I like the language there, but it's certainly a um, nice to have if we can get it so that we really are putting this affordable housing increment focused on the mega um, mansion buildings and other big developments within our city. Um, same, same thing when we look at the uh, any increases on the property tax. I'll be asking what guardrails are around that. Um, you know, I know we're we're going to be one of many folks having having that that discussion. And so, whether there's a percent limitation or it's linked to population growth or whatever, um, be wanting to know some details as you come back. Um, uh, finally, on the state budget reprogramming, um, both with the 405 improvements and others, this is something that um, is going to come up in other regional bodies that Kirkland's involved on. East Trail Partners is working on this, moving up some um, uh, East Trail funding. We've got the Cross Kirkland Corridor Hawk signal um, and others, so I think we'll need to work in partnership. And again, the 405 improvements, um, Councilmember Black and I have talked about, will come up in our ETP report during council reports, but this is also going to be a regional conversation. So just look for how can we join um, our, our other cities and agencies working on, on that. And then um, finally, I really appreciate how Councilmember Curtis says, here's how we're doing the ally list. It's linked to our priorities and other plans. I think that will simplify things a lot, and really appreciate um, uh, really appreciate that work. Um, and then finally, I uh, appreciated Councilmember Falcone's comment on uh, trying to be strategic. Uh, Sound Cities has a deputy mayor's call. I call it the deputy mayor support group. Um, <laughs> that we have an open uh, agenda, and often folks ask me about how we do things in Kirkland because for a lot of the things people are asking about, we've formalized that within how we do business as a council. This actually came up in the call uh, a week ago saying, how do you guys do your, your appointments to regional bodies because you're so effective regionally? And I had to say, we've been lucky because we've had everybody engaged and everybody picking the areas they're, they're passionate about. We haven't been formalized about saying, here's an opportunity we need to go fill as a city, and I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Just a couple, uh, I mean, a question and then a, a comment um, on, on some of this. Most uh, other questions have been answered. Um, on the list, on the ally list, I was wondering if we've ever had uh, an ally that is kind of represents businesses or economic development um, before uh, and or that was just one kind of um, 
type of organization or ally, you know, I didn't, I didn't expressly see on that list. Um, so that, that's a question. I don't know if anyone has any, knows the answer to that. I don't that. think we've ever officially had um, a formal economic development group, like say the Bellevue Downtown Chamber thing, or our chamber as one of our organizations. Um, but we certainly have had specific economic development initiatives or related projects on there. But yeah, we've never actually had an ally group. But we certainly could if the council wants to. Well, and we haven't been involved in the economic development council. I mean, that's really kind of fallen apart. Right. So, um, yeah, I think we take our lead a little bit from Bellevue. Okay. Um, I was wondering if it had been discussed or. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any, a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. Economic development. Just, it was just it was a it was a question. Yeah. I don't have a good idea on that. I just was curious. Um, and then the other one, and this is maybe just a comment for like future um, process around developing the legislative list, is that staff spends a good amount of time meeting with each of the council members in the summer to develop kind of topics, and then those are fed to the legislative work group, and then they, uh, you know, appear here on this list um, at this point. For me, not having, not, not, not being a cook in the kitchen, I don't know how, you know, how the recipes are, are, are done. Um, it'd be interesting to, it'd be helpful, not interesting, it'd be helpful for me to understand some of the discussions around, hey, that topic, it's not ripe enough, or, you know, there's not gonna be a champion at the state legislature, or, you know, there's not majority support, you're, you know, you're on your own, um, Councilmember Pascal. Or you know, just it would be nice to kind of get that, that feedback loop. I don't know how to how how that would be best be done, but um, just something to think about for the future. Councilmember Curtis, that was exactly what I was going to say. Is I, then I, what I'm hearing is it would be helpful to have a feedback loop. Yeah. That we've done the agenda. These are things you brought up. This is what we're thinking. Right. So, okay. Thank you. Okay. Oh, Deputy Mayor uh, My apologies for speaking twice. I had one other thing that wasn't in my notes that came up during the discussion. I uh, appreciate the thought of trying to be opportunistic about Juanita Park and the baseball fields there. I recall some previous discussion about um, wanting to wait for a master plan for that particular ball field. So I want to make sure before we go and say we want to add this to our legislative agenda that we get some background from from parks on on that particular idea that we got today from um, to to the whole council thank you thank you so Diana do you have what you need thank you oh yeah thank you with that I think, thank you very much for a beautiful presentation and for putting it all together for us. Uh, and as a member of the legislative work group, I just wanna say, we really tried hard to anticipate what our council generally is willing to and, and interested in supporting. So I, I, especially for a short session, because every time I go home, I get told what's not gonna happen. Um, <laughs> But I, I, I'm really proud of the work that we've done, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of this legislative draft, and thank you so much for your feedback. With that, 
That takes us to council reports, and I'm going to start today with Council Mayor Nixon. Uh, thank you. Um, I have nothing to report. I, I could mention a few things that events that happened, but I'm going to leave that to my colleagues. Okay. <laughs> Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, so I think I'll, I'll start off by um, highlighting that tomorrow the uh, uh, Racer Agency is having our second um, Principals Assembly. Uh, and the materials associated, uh, uh, the packet that went out to um, the five principals, um, that's something I can forward to the rest of the council. So after the meeting, um, I'll shoot that off to you. There's several memos from the staff. Uh, again, the focus, um, the focus still largely remains on, um, on operations um, and really getting the agency um, uh, uh, going from walking to running. Um, and if anyone has, after looking at those materials, if anybody has any questions for me, um, please don't hesitate to ask. Um, last Friday, we did have a meeting of the Eastside Transportation Partnership, and um, we now have um, wonderful support by, from our new transportation manager, Doug McIntyre, and he prepared a summary of that meeting and sent it all to you, so you have that in your emails. Um, one, uh, two things to highlight. One is um, something that Rod actually talked about earlier today was the fact that uh, Kirkland has applied for um, the SS4A grants in the amount of $240,000 for Vision Zero. Um, according to what, the, um, what we've been told is that uh, we should learn more about the results of that application for funding, uh, grant funding later this month. And then uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold um, already uh, sort of uh, previewed um, the Eastside Transportation Partnership's legislative agenda and the fact that it's uh, very, very likely to include um, uh, recommendations to the uh, state for bridging the forecasted shortfall for the 405-167 corridor improvements. Um, and just sort of reiterating what Deputy Mayor Arnold said, um, uh, he and I are both uh, representatives on the ETP. Uh, he has generously um, committed his time to working on the ETP's legislative agenda. And then you all know that I'm on the legislative work group. So I'm kind of proposing that uh, Deputy Mayor and Arnold and I sort of work together pretty closely um, to make sure the, the, the wording around the ETP um, legislative agenda for the forecasted shortfall for the 405-167 corridor improvements aligns you know, I'm going to steal your language you, you started with okay. in this agenda. Well, there you go. There you go. So we're going to try to align those because I think the more organizations, uh, agencies like ours and organizations like the ETP that have that, um, the better off we're going to be. Um, couple, uh, some things that have already been mentioned, like the uh, attending the K4C's uh, elected official work session uh, last Thursday. Uh, me, Councilmember uh, Curtis, and Councilmember Falcone were there, and it w really was actually a pretty, um, uh, pretty great program, and just a chance to hear. I think probably the most valuable part was to hear uh, just how much work the Department of Commerce is doing in distributing grant funding. Um, I think if I'm, I'm, I hope my colleagues will stop me if I quote this wrong, but a billion dollars is going to be um, uh, distributed by the Department of Commerce uh, between now and roughly June of next year. Um, so a lot of opportunities, and then I think probably the other big highlight was just hearing what all the other jurisdictions, um, 
just uh, innovative ideas uh, that our, uh, so many of our uh, fellow elected officials have uh, for programs uh, regionally and also within their own jurisdictions. Uh, so that was exciting. Um, and I think that is sufficient. Thanks. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. I went to many events, what I'm, which I'm not going to list, but I do want to call out the Harvest Festival, which is always a wonderful event. And um, I want to thank staff for quickly at the last minute putting together the council apple, apple juice distribution um, booth because it's always really a pleasure for us to be able to um, meet our community that way. So thank you. And I am looking forward to our upcoming events, the Fire Station 22 opening and our Arbor Day Festival. Super. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, the Harvest Festival, K4C, Fire Station, Open House, and Arbor Day have been mentioned, so I won't go over those. Um, a couple weeks ago, I attended a really informative um, Eastside Leadership Conference at Microsoft on AI, and it brought together business leaders and um, uh, leaders at all different levels of government, and we talked about AI and what's happening with AI, and it made me think of our recent um, Smart City Plan that we, that we talked about, and I don't remember AI being a part of that, so I... Um, Anyway, so just something for us to keep on our radar is this is, you know, fast coming and, and could really impact the way that we do business as a city um, and something to really think about. So that was really thought-provoking, a really thought-provoking day. Um, really appreciated um, all the support for HopeLink yesterday, and thank you to our, our wonderful mayor for, for hosting some of us there yesterday at the luncheon. Um, it was just amazing. I mean, it, was a, it was a great entertaining program. Uh, Common was amazing, uh, but also just tremendous support. I don't think I've ever seen that that venue packed. It was parking was completely full. It was um, it was it was really fantastic show of support for um, those in need in our community. Uh, tomorrow morning I have the SCA board meeting. One of the things that we're going to be talking about is our legislative agenda. I'm on the legislative committee um, and one thing I added to our board meeting agenda tomorrow is the purpose of our legislative agenda and kind of what we do with it. Um, so uh, I look forward to that interesting discussion. And lastly, just want to extend an invite um, for the Eastside Human Services Forum is holding a Lunch and Learn on Thursday on the title it might not excite you that much, but it's called Improving Cash Flow and Staff Retention in Eastside Human Service Agencies. But it really does focus on how Eastside cities are exploring shifts in their human services contract funding um, to help agencies address these issues and our very own Annie Smith um, is one of the speakers and presenters at that. So I think it'll be informative. Um, I can send you the link. It's free and it's virtual and it's from 2.30 to 4 on Thursday. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Have the uh, Regional Transit Committee meeting tomorrow. Uh, the two topics are very kind of Kirkland, of Kirkland interest. One is the uh, bus rapid transit update for the K line. And then the second is uh, just an update on how zero youth fares are going and the low income fares for the ORCA. Um, so look forward to receiving more information. There wasn't a ton of detail in the, in the packet, so I assume they'll be sharing more tomorrow. Um, I did want uh, folks to know that I did apply for one of those AWC um, boards, and that was the, the State Transportation Improvement Board. Maybe a surprise for you, maybe not. Um, <laughs> Human <laughs> services would have been a surprise. <laughs> uh, they, there was one opening for an elected um, leader on there. Um, 
And then that lastly, you know, in terms of regional committees, uh, I'm on the fence of reapplying for the SCA Regional Transit Committee. It's it's a it's a lot of time, and it's it's at a time that's difficult for me. Um, so, if there's other council members interested in that, that's feel free to chat. Thank you. That's a really important seat too. Okay, uh, sorry, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. A couple things to note that haven't been mentioned. On Friday, October 6th, Councilmember Curtis Nixon and I attended the ribbon cutting for the Kirkland Rotary Pavilion. Like we saw today with the Heritage Society, this is a great example of the city and a community group and a lot of volunteer group coming together to build that, that pavilion on the Cross Kirkland Corridor, preserve the history, and just have a, a great example of um, uh, uh, gathering space on the cross Kirkland corridor. So that uh, was well worth, that, that happened during the pandemic and well worth finally celebrating. Uh, also, this past Saturday, I spoke at a symposium for People of Climate Action. They had a speaker from San Francisco who was a former director of the Bay Area Regional Energy Network. And BayREN, which is called, is a model for providing funding for upgrades of existing buildings, both residential and commercial, at a much bigger scale than what we're doing with Energy Smart Eastside in, in partnership with Bellevue Redmond, Isquam, Mercer Island. It's the concept of really taking that to a PSRC level for county area and funding at, at that level, given um, funding, they get funding from their state utilities and transportation commission. It's a great concept to talk about and uh, PCA uh, will be publishing the video of that, uh, that event. Great. Thank you very much. Um, very briefly, I, uh, Cascade Water Alliance, the minutes will be coming out, or maybe they already have. Uh, we did have our regular meeting. Um, we need to pay attention to what's going on with that as we are getting toward the end of our negotiations between Seattle and um, and Tacoma for the, the long-term contract for that. It's It's been a long road. Um, we are in a, in a position where, Cascade is in a position where part of the decision that we make from a regional perspective is, are we building a sustainable system for water across the entire region, or are we simply paying attention to the bottom line for rates? Uh, and that will be a bit of a value judgment for us as we move forward with one contract or the other. So it's a heads up. Um, I also have joined a committee called the Organics Stakeholders Group, who are, we're meeting every other week for two hours and we're evaluating systems across the state and across the country, frankly, in how people are handling organics. As you all know, 70% of what goes into our landfill is food. Uh, and we need to figure out an alternative for that soon. Um, let's see, our WQC, I'm really gonna miss that committee. Um, <laughs> I have to say that under Claudia's leadership, we have done an amazing job of turning that committee around, and we have an amazing representation from SCA on that committee. So anybody who's interested in joining it, it is, it, it is a committee where work is happening. So I, I 
strongly encourage folks, if they are interested, to look at that. And it's a really important for committee for people to have membership on because it's big issues. But uh, We also had our uh, check-in with Claudia last week. Uh, I think the major topic we talked about was a little bit of putting some pressure on health through housing. Um, gave her some update about uh, the park and ride. Um, the other thing I did is I went on a tour with uh, the waste treatment or wastewater treatment division of a bi or of a, of a tree farm in Carnation, thousands of acres, and they were doing application of the biosolids waste from 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 the loop that comes out of uh, um, out of the re well, biosolids from wastewater. Anyway, it's a fascinating process. They've been doing this for almost 40 years, and there are whole forests that are being nurtured and, and <coughs> raised, and it makes this amazing difference in how quickly uh, those forests are, are, are growing, and the, the, those are timber forests. So, um, And that, uh, Ms. Wack had a meeting on Friday. John's got the notes. I want to just point out, though, one comment about Toby. Toby did yeoman's work for the Harvest Festival. Um, he was there the whole time. He he brought all of the equipments and bins and the rest of it. So just thank you for that. I don't think I don't 150 think, pounds of ice. Yeah, <laughs> it was big. And then the final thing I did last week was the Kingsgate 50-year anniversary. Juanita um, Jazz Ensemble played. It was absolutely fabulous. It was really well attended. It was just a wonderful event. And with that, I'll turn it over to the city manager. <clears throat> Thank you, Mayor. So I have a couple of regional updates with my many regional hats. So first, uh, to piggyback on what Councilman Black said about RACER as the RACER president, I'll be at the principal's assembly as well. Uh, but I do want to encourage you to look at the documents that uh, he just forwarded. But I want to give the council an update on staffing in particular just right now. So the really great news is uh, the plan is working. The fact that we have dedicated, um, well-paid positions that have good salaries and strong benefits, we are actually attracting really exceptional um, mental health professionals from around the region. So we actually have nine out of our 10 slots now filled as of October 16th. We have hope to have the 10th filled by the end of the year. Um, in addition to that, we actually received a grant from WASPIC to hire three additional uh, positions. Unfortunately, the grant is limited, and it can't be used to supplant, so it has to be additional positions. And so what we did as a board is we <clears throat> are creating sort of a temporary, almost uh, kind of like a fellowship-type program, so we're actually going to hire additional um, mental health professionals who are working their way up to get the kind of certifications that would allow them to be long-term mental health professionals for our system. So... Major kudos to the racer staff, to Brooke and Heather. They're doing a great job hiring. So it's very exciting to see those uh, fill in and then add the additional services that uh, throughout the five cities. So switching hats to my EPSCA hat, which I haven't talked about in quite a long time, but I want to let you all know that the new PCRN radio system is going to become fully operational by the end of the year, and EPSCA as a sub-regional entity will go away as a radio operator. So... The Pacern operator, which will be the countywide operating system for our radios, for all the digital radios, will go into effect, and uh, EPSC will go away. The reason I wanted to bring this up is there's two big topics that are going to happen that um, matter to the five cities of EPSCA. 
The first is we have quite a bit of reserves that EBSCA had generated over time for our radio replacement to replace our own radio system. We didn't need to do that once the countywide radio system went into effect, so we have several million dollars that we're going to be dividing among the five cities once everything is fully paid for and we know we've fully decommissioned um, the local radio system. Um, our plan is to divide those by the number of radios per city, and that money would come back to us and go into our reserves for our replacing our future radio system for police, fire, and public works. So that's good news. We'll have some, some return of, of funds that will help us out next year. Uh, the second thing that I wanted to let you know about is we also are having a principals meeting, which is basically all the um, non-delegates, so the mayors and city managers, because one of the things that we're doing is the PCRN operating system has four governing board members, uh, one north, one south, one east, one west, and the east side member happens to be me at the moment. Um, <clears throat> but EBSCO will retain a small skeleton shell of itself with their only purpose will be to pick the east side rep for East King County in perpetuity. And so we're actually bringing that group together to basically make the decision about dividing the funds and also to uh, pick the next EBSCA rep, because I feel after seven years it's time to pass the baton to one of the other five cities. Uh, so hopefully um, that will go well. I don't know. There's going to be any volunteers, but I'm going to be stepping back, so someone's going to have to do it. And then finally, I want to talk about ARCH. I think, as I mentioned to you, I'm currently the chair of the ARCH um, strategic planning group. Um, not the chair of ARCH itself anymore, but we have been meeting several times, and we're actually going to be coming to the council in November with an update on what the strategic planning group is looking at, uh, trying to define sort of the next 20 years of ARCH, and we'll be bringing that to all ARCH member cities in the first quarter of next year. So I have a short update probably at the second meeting in November. Uh, but that's going really well, and the jurisdictions are all essentially affirming their commitment to ARCH. Uh, but a lot of what we're looking at is the same issues you're all struggling with in your regional committees, which is how do we get more housing built? How do we preserve the housing that we have? And what's Arch's role in all of that? So um, it's a lot happening on the regional front. And just wanted to let you all know that and see if you have any questions on Racer, EBSCA, or Arch. Looks like you covered it. Okay. And then any calendar updates from any council member? I don't see any. All right, that's all I have, Madam Mayor. That's all you've got, and I believe we are, oh, it's only 921. <laughs> okay, so this is an additional time in our meeting when we normally can hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial or otherwise scheduled for public hearing on our agenda, and assuming the rest of the meeting has been concluded before 10 o'clock, is there anyone from the public who wishes to make comments now, either in person or via telephone? Is there anybody on telephone? Thank you very much. Anybody out there want to make public comment? Are you sure? Okay, last last chance. All right. With thank you very much, and we are going to adjourn. Thank you very much. Thank you.